Hey, let's start the show. It's March 19th, 2015. Welcome to This Is Only a Test, the official podcast of Tested.com. Hey guys, welcome to This Is Only Test. I'm Will. We're using an unregistered registered version of Soundboard because I got a new laptop and forgot to put the code in. And when will we stop hearing about um, that? I, right now. I just pressed the button. <laughs> oh um, I'm going to put that information in right now while we do the intro. I'm Will Smith, seated directly to my left. Norman Chan, how are you doing Whoa. this morning, sir? Um, Hello. Joining us as, as is the usual now, I think. Resting his nose on the microphone. <laughs> it's early. Jeremy Williams. Good morning. How are you doing, sir? I'm good. Um, what's the haps? We've seen a lot of you the last few days. Like We had an outing yep. on Sunday. Yep. That was fun. That was fun. Is, am I talking? Is this loud? Is I can't it, hear myself. We can hear you. I can there turn you up a little uh, bit. I just better, want to you. deafen you. Uh, yeah, we had a good time. Uh, we had a, like an electric vehicle day. Yeah, it was, it was a day of the future. Right. Which, I, which I thought was kind of fun. I expected and, 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 and it, it ended exactly how a day of the future should end. Like I drove off in an electric car? Crashing quadcopters. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we crashed a lot of quad. Well, okay, so we went to the polo fields in Golden Gate National Park. Uh, or I guess it's not Golden Gate National just Park. Golden it's just Gate Golden Park. Gate Park. Because if it was National it was Park, National, we, we fly couldn't quads fly quadcopters. Yeah. That would um, be bad. We went there. You brought your boosted board. Norm, you brought three or four quads? I brought three quadcopters, I believe. You had one FPV quad, the Phantom. That's right. And... Oh, and a parrot, and the, the parrot bebop. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I brought the electric unicycle. Jeremy and I brought kids. I brought my boosted board. I brought wife. And then Norm you also girlfriend. drove an electric car. I drove an electric car there. Powered. A lot of, lot of electrons going around It was there. entirely powered by my own sense of self-satisfaction. It was pretty cool. It's, it was a fun day. Yeah. Um, so we were riding around. Gina didn't, I didn't notice at the time because I've become immune to noticing uh, like people reacting when I ride around that unicycle. Really? But she pointed out... I guess you gotta be. You, you stop noticing after a few <laughs> days. Um, I did notice somebody took a picture of me when I was riding down the street yesterday. I thought that was weird. Like, people were stopping their car to get out and take a picture of the asshole on the electric <laughs> unicycle in San Francisco. Well, if you want to get points on Reddit, um, so look at this asshole. Right yeah. This is San Francisco. There you go. Um, but she said when we were riding the boosted board in the electric unicycle, people were stopping and staring. And like pointing and going like, is that electric? I can't like that might be electric. Yeah. It doesn't look like they're doing anything to go. Yeah. So I was on my boosted for this is just five minutes of the afternoon, but I was on my boosted holding a uh, like a, a, three an axis, active gimbal, three axis uh, gimbal. Yeah. W- stabilizer for a GoPro. And I was shooting you on your electric mm-hmm. um, uh, unicycle. Yes. The self-balancing so, unicycle. Yeah. So, so that was just an interesting. That was. I would think if only if, I, if, if only I had, had been circling with with the quadcopter right. at that very moment. You'd been doing if, an orbital shot. If but only. we were responsible and didn't want too many things going on at once. We had a lot of moving pieces in any given moment there. But um, so that was a lot of fun. Uh, South by Southwest is happening right now. Norm, are you glad you're not there? Are you sad I'm you're missing? Sad it? I'm not there. Really? Because because it's a lot of fun. A lot of stuff to see. Austin's a, lot of stuff Austin's, to see. Austin's a great city. Austin's fun. Did, I miss Austin. Did Mondo release some prints this year? 
Uh, Monocon happens, I believe, a- after Summer the week Southwest. after, right? Oh, I or thought... it's while inter- it's while music is going on, right? Okay, that's separate. Uh, oh, Mondo okay. has their own conference, that's where they do the big stuff. But uh, last year they did have a gallery. I don't think they're doing a gallery this gotcha. year at the same time. Last year they did the Disney Gallery. We, got a we visited that dope Winnie the Pooh print for my kid there last year. Um, so okay, South by Southwest is happening. You want to let's just jump straight into the news. There's a bunch of tr- interesting stuff this week. Um, Sony today is rolling out their over the top TV service, which is called View V U E. It is. Um, is this in the U.S. as well? It's in several cities in the U.S. I think it's Chicago, uh, New York, and maybe Los Angeles. I can't remember what the third city is, but it's a limited limited number of cities, um, and it, you, you connect using the PS4, PS3, I believe. What's the view service exactly? Um, I'm going to I'm opening that page right now so I can tell you. Uh, but it's fairly expensive compared to, say, Sling TV. It seems more comprehensive. It's missing ABC stuff was the big gap that I remember seeing. So Sling um, TV is $20 a month, and you get channels like uh, you get cable channels, ESPN, TBS, TNT, mm-hmm. USA, uh, not Comedy Central, not Discovery, not the travel. I think you do get Food Network. Yes. Um, and then AMC as well is coming soon. So here's the stuff that's on view. Um, they do broadcast local channels it's, it's in the on, supported regions. On view, on view. And are these channels broadcast live, or is it, yes. are these on demand? These are. Um, there's a virtual DVR, mm-hmm. which is kind of what I expected with Sling that they didn't do. And then it's broadcast live, so you, and you can record stuff to your DVR for watching later. So how does Sony do this? Because Sling works because it's part of Dish, and Dish all, already gets the feeds. I think Sony is probably has a licensing deal, like they have lawyers. Is how it works. Well, I guess. okay, so they're just getting the same feeds, and then they're running their own. It's, they, they built out new, new servers or th- to distribute. Yeah, my hunch is that they they built out an infrastructure for for this service. Um, it's not it's not cheap. Is the first thing you should know. So how much is it? Um, it starts at. Hold on, I'm getting there. Looks like fifty bucks. Fifty bucks, and it goes up from there. There's additional packages you can add on to. Sounds typical, Some, typical yeah. for a cable, but not as many stations. It's a it's a subset of the stations you would get on cable. It's a lot of the stuff that I actually watch, minus the ABC and Disney channels. So, yeah. what's the advantage of this over a traditional service that would also cost around fifty? That's the question I have. Like, I don't know why you would do this unless with this virtual DVR, can I record multiple shows at the same time? It's unclear. Uh, it's launching today, so we'll we'll install it and test it later and talk about it next week, okay. probably. Um, oh, actually, only... we're not in a supported network. I'm sorry, we can't we can't test it. What are the supported networks? So the supported areas are um, Chicago, Chicago, Philadelphia, and New York. Okay, well, that's um, a, and it's big big areas. So they're limited. They're limiting the rollout to places that they have local local network streaming capability. So you get unlike the Sling TV, where you don't get NBC, ABC, CBS. If you're a View TV customer in New York, Philadelphia, or Chicago, you'll be able to watch your local stations in addition to the stuff that normally comes over the cable network. And it's a big list of channels. It's CBS, CBS Plus, Cozy. Exitos, Fox, My Network, NBC, and Telemundo, and then a bunch of cable networks as well, including AMC, Animal Planet, BT, Bravo, Adult Swim, Cartoon Network, CBS, Country Music Television. I mean, there's like 30 channels. I'm not going to read them all. It's 53 channels for 50 bucks a month, and then there are also upsells for 60 and $70 a month. Where you get sports and and some other stuff. Uh, The $60 package is a sports edition. uh, It's like like sports networks. Local sports. And then at $70, you get specialized like children's channels, like sports route or fxm exactly which i'm not sure is a children's channel but like you said there's no abc or any of the disney owned channels which is espn so that presumably for, is coming 
They, they, they have hinted that it is coming. Okay. Um, and this works on PS4 and PS3. Um, and I think probably the Vita TV, if that's out here yet. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, the requirement is a PS3 or PS4, so you'll be able to watch it on an iPad, but not on the play- PlayStation TV, actually. So, hmm. there you go. Uh, it, like, the thing is, this doesn't make sense. To me. Like, this isn't what I want. No, this is not the answer to cable no. cutting. Right, and, the, the big bundle yeah. for 50 bucks a month That's doesn't solve paying. the problem that I that I have with right. cable right now. Yes, and the problem you cable right now, it's not, you know, it's bad customer service is one thing for certain certain providers, but it is the, you you can't choose, you can't get a la carte. Right. And I, we haven't seen any real a la carte model. Even well, Sling TV isn't really an a la carte H- model. HBO, HBO yes. now. HBO now is the... The, 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 the one, one, yeah. But that's also $15 a month for a single quote-unquote channel. Right. With arguably some of the best programming. I, I would say that that's the one thing that's worth $15 a month as a standalone channel right now, given what their, given what their TV setup is like. And I think HBO Now, which we did talk about a little bit last week, I think it's less for people who currently have existing subscriptions and, and pay for, you know, whether it's Comcast or Dish or Time Warner, and then already pay for HBO than it is for people who don't ha- already don't have cable, of which there are a lot of people, mm-hmm. and who have Netflix, and f- and to then buy into HBO. Um, I think I mean, we'll get a lot. Of, I think people are going to cut their Comcast eventually, uh, but HBO now is more for the people who aren't paying anything already. We, I mean, we've yeah, been, they already have HBO go. We've been talking about yeah, cord exactly. cutting for five years now, just to be clear. So I think, I think there's, I mean, there's, there's two angles. There's cord cutting. And then there's the angle of people who either pirate or don't, you know, or live on a very limited free only subscription. And what, what's the phrase for that? Freegans? No, no, but what's the phrase for getting them to buy into limited? I don't think like, there is one. Well, I think there should be one because I think a lot of these services are for those people. I mean, that, that's an interesting point because a lot like the the argument has always been that the net the the market isn't providing the content at the price point that that people who are pirating want. Um, and I mean, I think Netflix, the rise of Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Video, kind of are the counter to that. Because if you look at if if somebody's not willing to pay eight dollars a month or ten dollars a month, whatever it is, Netflix charges now for you know what is a, a a small selection of really high quality content, and then basically infinite other stuff. You're not going to. There's not a better deal than Netflix or Amazon Amazon Prime Video for for people who don't want who want to pay for stuff. And or but just can't because it's either too expensive or it's inconvenient. Have you seen an influx? Uh, you feel like there's an influx of Netflix original, exclusive programming lately? I, I feel mean, like there definitely has been. For, for uh, I mean, I still watch Orange Is the New Black and House of Cards, but that, well, House that of Cards is, is done. Is, is no oh, one more season. Uh, I, I, without spoiling, okay. I think that it's. I mean, it's a very expensive show to make, but that's obviously one of their flagship shows. It's their Game of Thrones. Right. Uh, Orange is New Black. Is, is an original series he picked up and hugely successful. But I've seen an influx of documentaries that are Netflix exclusive, uh, comedy specials that are Netflix, especially a lot of comedy specials, uh, Ziz and Zari's latest comedy special, which I think, you know, the, the models for comedians, if you're someone like it, Aziz and Zari, Louis C.K., is one go with the traditional, the quote unquote traditional model is HBO special. 
Yeah, sell it HBO to HBO. We'll sell you, and that's like you know when you've done your tour, um, you know, several times, and you want to make it more widely available. Well, it's when HBO. you retire the material, right? right. Like Louis C.K. has talked about that in the past. But Louis C.K. is different because he does a new. He retires way more frequently than comedians had traditionally done. We that's talk true. about the old, the old Seinfeld and Carlin models, and he did like the, the Chris Rock models. What's they the they did several years of a tour, or year, you know, at least a year, and then they reti- quote unquote retire it with HBO. Comedians now have the option of self Distributing, which Louis C.K. has been successful in doing. And I think Aziz Ansari did as well, right? And then also with Netflix. Netflix, obviously, they have allocated a ton of money. You know, eventually, it's more. It's going to get more expensive for them to license content for TV shows, movies. And people are going to eventually watch a lot of that back catalog. And to get people to keep on subscribing, they need to have original content. So they have comedy specials. But also, there's, they pick up, Netflix picks up shows that no one else picks up. And I think that's the wrong way to do it. You mean they pick up pilots that other networks rejected? Yes. Uh, the, for example? Uh, last week or two weeks ago, uh, new show on Netflix, uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Tina Fey produced show. Um, and it's the, this is the show with the great opening theme song the, with the auto tune opening yes. theme song. Um, and it, if you look at the history of the production of that show, it was an NBC show. NBC paid for it and ordered a season and produced 13 episodes and then decided it maybe wasn't good enough for NBC. Actually, this is the one that they said, Hey, we don't have a place to put, right? We don't have a comedy block to put this in. So it'll, it'll die. It'll die. Or it wasn't good enough for their comedy block. I know, dude, they don't have it. They said there was an article about this. They explicitly said, we don't have a comedy block. We don't have a place to put it. It will die. If if it's good enough. Yeah. If the show was good enough, if the show was good enough, they'd find a place. If they thought it it was, but no, it's a huge hit. People love it. I'll tell you. Watching that show, I don't like it. Oh, you don't all. like it? Oh, I've heard. I, I know it's like been it. well reviewed. Yeah, but the feeling I get when I watch a show on HBO. Did you like Thirty Rock? I love Thirty Rock, right. and I think it's like it like kind of have elements of that Thirty Rock comedy. But I think my problem was it with it is that it was a show not conceived of and produced from start to finish as a Netflix show, which a show like Orange the New Black was. Now, how does that I love change that. things? And I think it makes it tamer because you don't have to worry about time constraints. Not just time constraints, but like. You know the the rules of broadcast television uh-huh. and what's and the, the what you're appealing to you know trying to get ratings uh-huh. building a show for ratings as opposed to building a show when the people are already bought in huh. and you can do more serialized storytelling well, or more edgy it's, it's, quote it's unquote edgier yeah. storytelling or yeah binge and, and the whole binge thing I think this show is not very bingeable it's produced like a show people watch once a week really uh, which I mean I think it's interesting from a content producing standpoint. Like shows are written differently when they are a Game of Thrones and House of Cards type show. But presumably this is a show that that NBC didn't pay for production beyond a pilot. So the first episode would be the NBC production and the rest of it would be the Netflix, right? Or do we know I, that? I, I think that NBC had paid for the whole season and Netflix bought the rights to two seasons. Okay. And the second season will probably, I mean, maybe it'll get, I mean, the Netflix, one of the smartest thing Netflix has done. And like, here's a uh, interesting thing. Like HBO, and other networks had the option to buy House of Cards. Mm-hmm. Had like, yep. they shopped it around, mm-hmm. and Netflix paid a ton of money. It was like I think a hundred million dollars a season or something for House of Cards. And a question of why didn't like an HBO pick it up? And HBO's business model is similar to Netflix business model in that they they maybe don't need it because they have that a show that costs that much that fills that role. The well, anchors every year, so, so Game of Thrones. The thing that we've learned from working with people who programmed TV in past lives is that 
like two thirds of the TV programming seems to be matching up the show with the show that goes before it. Cause still in, even in 2014, 2015, a lot of people just don't change the channel after they watch something that they like. So for example, if you put, if you look at American idol and the demographics for that and house house is a Venn diagram that lives inside the American idol uh, circle. If you put house on immediately following, a lot of people just keep watching house. And as a result, that show will become successful. So Netflix doesn't have that. Like there's no, all Netflix has is the homepage promotion or the, the it's the first house of cards or orange is the new black or whatever they're pushing is literally the first thing you see every time you launch Netflix. Netflix has a autoplay for next episode. Right. That's the, the, their quote unquote equivalent, but, but it's not the same. It's not the same. It's more for binge. It's more to get people hooked on a specific show as opposed to a block of shows and a it's, block of three or four yeah, shows. It doesn't let them cross promote at all, which is I think a mistake on their part. They, they do the cross promotion in that there's a recommended block when you finish an episode. Like these are other things, three other things you might like, but doesn't have the same uh, com- compelling you to like, it's not television where as the credits roll in the previous show, Right. You're starting the cold open for the next show. The thing, the thing that I don't understand about what they're doing is it, it, like, I don't understand why they don't do the thing that HBO does with HBO go, where when you start an episode of veep, you see the preview, the the promo for game of Thrones or whatever. It's usually something that's very cleverly shot and it's, it's appropriate for the audience of the show that's going on. So they don't show, you know, a bunch of nudity on veep probably, but they do have you know foul language and, and all that stuff. And it, and it works really well. It makes me want to watch the shows. And I'll tell you on HBO, because that is not on demand, that is once every week. And it's, um, there's a, uh, it is a appointment television mm-hmm. because you've made the appointment with your friends or, you know, and I'm not saying HBO, even with HBO, but more, more so the live stuff. Um, when you've made the appointment on Sunday nights to watch game of Thrones, you're already committed to watching the trailers That's true. in front when you are watching purely on demand as is the Netflix model, I think, and I, I don't know if data backs up, but I would bet the data would bet this up, is that people have little tolerance for anything that gets in the well, way of their click and watch content. So for me- Same with YouTube ads. Fair enough. And, and like Hulu is the is the natural endpoint of that as a as a bad 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 user experience. But I think the HBO stuff works because it helps me, as somebody who doesn't know when the new season of Game of Thrones is gonna be on, it helps me know that just by doing something I would do otherwise. And they're, they're really short bits too. They're like 15 seconds. Usually. It's also a branding thing. HBO is a really good thing of when you buy into HBO, you buy, in, you, you buy into a certain level of quality because that's their messaging. Right. We produce excellent quality shows. And that's not maybe necessarily the case because many HBO shows do half a season, one season and don't find an audience um, or they drag on like the newsroom. Um, but on Netflix, I think there are still, I, I, I think that if you, you look at some of the net, if you look at House of Cards and Orange New Black, which is two fantastic shows and won a lot of awards, they want to be at the HBO level where people are like, okay, maybe I don't care about that back catalog. That's the gravy, but I'm paying seven bucks a month, maybe ten bucks a month eventually for the content that they are producing, they're curating and they're putting money into. Uh, I think producing shows that are leftover shows from other networks is hurts that. Well, it's not good enough. So the, there's another thing that you touched on earlier that HBO did really, really well in the early days of HBO and has kind of backed away from a little bit as they've gotten bigger. But they used to be a, a fantastic place for, for to watch literally the best documentaries that are made at any given time. Um, and, and I don't feel like that's the case as much anymore, probably because there's a little more competition in the purchasing documentary space. I think for a long time it was basically them and like Discovery Channel and, and, and a handful of, sm- you know, of smaller networks. Um, but Netflix, like I love 
the curated Netflix documentary section, right? They probably have the best collection of documentaries out there. Yeah, you know you're going to find something interesting. And and that's because documentaries are, it's a type of film, one of the type of film media that's independent that you can do a really well-produced independent documentary that doesn't get a lot of play. And doesn't cost a ton to make. Doesn't cost a ton to make, and they make the festival circuits, and there's no home for them outside of the old DVD release. And getting an actual DVD blue release is expensive. Yeah. And so it's cheap for Netflix to pick those up. Uh, there are there, there are networks, like streaming networks that are de- devoted just to that. Well, there are uh, YouTube channels that have nothing but full-length documentaries on them. Right, but yeah. in terms of new, the festival circuit, Fandor is a website, F-A-N-D-O-R.com, that specifically licenses independent films, documentaries, and old movies uh, that make the festival circuit that and foreign films that you would not see even on a Netflix. Yeah. So anyway, um, the view, I don't know how we ended up talking about Netflix for 20 minutes, but, uh, the view service probably cause it's more interesting. I think probably so. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and there's Amazon, you know, they're, you know, uh, very successful, transparent mm-hmm. this past year. Uh, Yahoo has community now the new season. So everyone's norm. You have to say Yahoo the right way. Yahoo. Yahoo. Yahoo exclamation mark has community and uh, there's a you know everyone wants to be in the the media the media game to take your seven to ten dollars a month yeah do you Um, know do you know anyone who pays for the amazon um streaming beyond the prime membership you mean like does on demand video yeah no i never buy stuff from amazon no just curious Um, and and you know what i bet amazon oh they do have some selection i I think I've done it like twice and it's only be- not because I'm browsing on Amazon. Is that right? It's only because can I stream.it can I stream it yeah. says that this show, this thing can only be rented on Amazon. Right. That That's the only time I use that. The, you know, the thing I have been using more often for like rental videos, rental movies is Xbox. Uh, it's usually a buck cheaper than Apple TV hmm. and the video quality is it's quite good these days. Yeah. Um, and like it turns out with Plex and HBO Go and Netflix and Hulu and Amazon all on Xbox, that's kind of the place that I'm doing most of my like on-demand video watching these days. Is the view um, 4K by any chance? I'm sure it's just 1080p right Because that would be great. You know, as as a seller of 4K TVs, you would think that Sony would be promoting a 4K this is why I streaming wondered. service, but I don't think there's no there's no con, there's no the networks aren't broadcasting in 4K, so no. there's nothing for them to send. Well, yeah. yeah. Not some Netflix has 4K, but you need to have the right player to do it. And I think right now NVIDIA's upcoming um, Shield is one of the few players that does all the content DRM that certifies uh, uh, Netflix's but it, I mean the 4K requirements. The problem with 4K right now is that the bandwidth that most people have coming into their houses is barely sufficient for a, a you know, you, you need a massive amount of bandwidth coming in for a good 4K stream. What do you need? Um, I, I would think it's on the order of an uh, of a lightly compressed 1080p stream. So if you think about it with H.264, I think it's probably 15, 20 megabits. What? Are you serious? Well, Netflix's 4K streams at 15.6 megabits. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So so if you think about that. So like, that's, that's downloading at two megabytes a second if you yeah. want to. But most, I mean, most people who have even crappy Comcast internet get... 25. Yeah, 10, 10 but to 14. But you lose 10% no for the overhead and all that. It's, I mean, the thing that's interesting about that is that broadcast over the air HDTV in 1080p, which looks great, usually broadcasts about 20 megabits a second. And that's MPEG 2 lightly compressed. Yeah. Yeah. So and Blu ray is, a 1080p Blu ray is about 40 megabits per second. Yeah. 
Yeah. That, that actually, as somebody who's ripped a lot of Blu-rays lately, that varies really wildly based on who mastered the disc. There are there are definitely um, like if you look at the Lord of the Rings discs and the and the Hobbit discs, those are enormous bitrate videos coming out of the disc. If you look at especially back catalog stuff like original X-Men and and you know old Toby Maguire Spider-Man and stuff like that those videos have much lower uh, bit rates did they do that because they were lazy or because they needed to fit on a smaller disc there's three different video codecs I think that are supported by blu-ray mm-hmm. and then a bunch of subsets and the VC1 stuff is always the low bit rate so VC1 is the WMA variant I think I can't remember but it's it is inferior to h.264 I believe animation requires less for the same amount of detail. Uh, 2D cell animation requires a little lower bit rate, but 3D animation, it seems to be about the same. So anyway, um, this is all anecdotal from, you know, my Blu-ray ripping adventures. Uh, Windows 10 is going to be released this summer. They're Microsoft's making it free for pirates. So already, if you are a Windows 7, Vista, uh, 7 or 8 user, you'll get a free upgrade to 10. Um, Seven, eight, eight point one for a right. a year. Isn't there's, that right? There's a so eight and eight point one can upgrade indefinitely. Oh, as I, one year. Oh, it's only one year now. One year. So when they originally said it was only a year for seven, and then eight was indefinite. They, they or it was unclear. Maybe it was unclear. And Terry Myerson said, "Happy to have the promotion for one year for seven, eight, and eight point one." I mean that seems great. The, like, which doesn't say doesn't mean that they can't extend that at some point if it's highly successful. Right. Um, but at a point where one year later new PCs will be shipping, presumably with Windows 10, and you're going to have huge adoption in that first year. Yeah. Uh, the amount of money they would be making from stragglers to upgrade, upgrade would be, uh, I think, inconsequential. Well, just to be clear, I mean, here's the, the secret of Windows has always been that the upgrade market is has always been a tiny, tiny percentage of Windows sales. Like, the retail copies that have been at Best Buy and Walmart and Target, that's less than 10%, even in the heyday of Windows upgrades with, with like, 98 to ME to, to Windows 2000 to XP. Um, so, like, making it free is a is a shockingly smart goodwill gesture uh, for, for Windows users. And, and I think, like, I don't see any downside to them letting people who pirated Windows get free copies. It, it you know, potentially could get them hooked on having legit copies of Windows. Well... I'll tell you this. You'll probably need to register for an account. Well, yeah, they want Windows Live they accounts. Want, they want people to sign up for accounts where they can either send emails or when you're when you're using Windows, then you, you might eventually buy buy something, buy movies, buy or Sky buy applications, uh, OneDrive, or, or yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing is, if they hook, if they get you hooked on the version of Windows that has the services integrated, which will be turned off on the pirated versions, I'm sure, then it encourages you to buy an upgrade in the future. This is also smart because it lets them reset the the customer's expectation for the price of Windows and the market's expectation for the price of Windows. So, you know, it, ten years ago, Windows for two hundred bucks made sense because you you needed it to work. Now our expectation is that operating system should be inexpensive or free and this lets them reset the price of windows to say thirty dollars for windows 11 or whatever the next version is going to be called um and and helps them reset with shareholders as well and it's coming this summer and it's not going to be free for cut for oems obviously i mean hp and those guys are still having to pay so sub amount um yeah so coming this summer that's that's soon summer is like uh, three months away we all thought october like that's the tradition yeah but it's 
they don't need to they don't need to have a big you know rollout Windows upgrade party. Uh, the last summer rollout that I remember was either ME or ninety five. Ninety five shipped in August and ME I think shipped in September. Well, let's hope that it's more like ninety five than ME. You think they'll do a public release candidate? Um, I would assume so. I mean, I think they laid off a bunch of Windows testers a few months ago when that in that round of layoffs. So. Um, I think that they have to do a public public release beta yeah. release. And given that the you can get a preview now, and they just did a new preview, mm-hmm. they said that you know, they're in, they're increasing the rate of previews. So I'm sure that it's getting close to if, what the final one's going to be like. If they do a preview, it would be really nice if they roll it out as a. Um, as a uh, uh, like, if they say usually when they do a preview beta release whatever, it's something that you're not supposed to upgrade to the final. It would be nice if they make it upgradable to the final and just say that from the beginning. Oh yeah, that'd be good. Uh, there could be some limitations. I mean, there's just always fundamental limitations. Always a that. chance. Um, other interesting note that came out of all this talk is that there is going to be a 32-bit version of Windows 10. I don't know why you would want to have a 32-bit version of Windows 10 unless you're running some ancient legacy app that just doesn't work and you need it for like some big corporate application or something. But you can continue getting 32-bit Windows for at least the next couple of years. Um, the 9to5 Mac had, uh, I assume this was a leak, it was unclear from the article, uh, about the Apple Store's retail plans for the watch. So starting on April 10, the day that you can pre-order the watch, you can go to the store, make an appointment for a 15-minute try-on, uh, to try on the different bands and styles to see which watch you want, and then pre-order it on the spot. Or if you already know which one you want, you can just go straight, cut the line, and go straight to the pre-order right now. So line. that's also the pre-order day that you that's can go online. That's the pre-order day, yeah. <laughs> so they're asking people not to go online and pre-order, but to make an appointment if that's what I, you want to do. That's it. No. Seems like the the thing. I mean, I think they want to avoid returns. Is the idea? That's good for them, yeah. but then you do risk the you know getting it on as soon as you can. People are going to pre-order without that's, sight of the scene. Yeah, it's just like with any Apple product. There's going to be like a small window of being able to pre-order and get it on release day. Mm-hmm. You think that, but I mean, who knows? I, I mean, do. I think <laughs> the I think the more expensive the watch gets, you the more can likely wait. you are to get it on on release day. And my hunch, you know, I'm going to ask a question here. I think I have an idea what the answer is, but do you think that they're going to prioritize the less expensive watches or the more expensive watches if stuff's supply constrained? What do you mean prioritize? So are they going to take orders and fulfill them in the order in which they're received? Or are they going to fill the $10,000 watches first and then the $1,000 watches and then the $750 watches and then the $500 watches? I don't don't understand the question. I mean, Apple's fulfillment is is light speed. So it's whatever they have in stock is going to be able to ship. Well, but I guess what I'm saying is if they're supply constrained on something, Mm -hmm. they're going to fill, they're going to put the parts that are supply constrained to the more expensive models before they go to the less expensive oh, models. I think the supply so? constraints will be more about the manufacturing processes than than the component than the yeah. external components. Yeah. And the, the, so you since think it's the actual about, shells. I think that since the two primary shells, the steel and aluminum ones, are fundamentally different processes. It's gonna be a matter of did they anticipate the right numbers yes. for each yeah. skew. It's not gonna be an allocation based on demand. Well but they've already made the allocation they they have I mean this is new territory for them, but I, I presume they'll be pretty good. They've about never that. had a product with this many variables. You well, know? of course. So presumably, with this many, with this many, with a a fourteen day lead between the pre order day and the release day, that actually is in Apple's supply chain timeline enough to make significant shifts if they need to. Mm. I mean, the life of a MacBook is like six days from the time that you know the the aluminum comes into the factory and the laptop goes out. It's crazy. 
it's really fast. I can't remember. Um, we're skipping the most, the, the biggest story of the week. Oh my gosh! I, I, to talk to talk about Apple Watch. It's an it's an alphabetical order. You want to talk about the higher price point for the Vive? Is that no? The big I one? want to talk about what's on the top of the page. Oh, I think the Jesus. Nintendo. Oh. <laughs> no, the, the, I think the biggest, okay. most interesting thing this week. Let's uh, let's stop talking about the watch presales. Okay. And you want to talk about the carbon three D? I printer. want to talk about the carbon three D printer. Okay. I think it's absolutely the easiest, easy, easiest. Uh, the, it's the, cool. The the most interesting. It's technology not a product story yet. this week. Not a so, product. So yeah, yet. it looked vapory to me. Is, is I I what I, I, I would say initially thought not vapor. I, 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 if I could pre-order this right now, I would do it. You're a believer. I'm a believer. All right. What is it? Uh, Carbon 3D, a company that has made an announcement at this year's TED conference where... Where all uh, good where products many, are released. Where many, many products are now have... Aren't being announced, and maybe that's good or bad. I don't, I don't, that's Ted politics. I'm kicking myself for not announcing Game Frame there. I know, you should have exactly. done that, man. Uh, yeah. one, one step up. Um, but uh, they've been working for several years now, two years now, with capital, uh, with an investment uh, from Score Capital. So they have money. It's not just like dudes in a lab. Um, and they have a 3D printer that's their claiming is a step up from SLA. So right now, fundamental, uh, there are three known uh, 3D printing technologies. Um, well, there's more than that. Three, three commonly known yeah. 3D printing technologies among enthusiasts. Uh, FDM is the one that we're most familiar Huge with. Deposition. Huge deposition modeling, which is the uh, melted plastic layer by layer, your maker bots, your printer bots. That's, uh, you know, top that, down. That's what you guys that, do here. Uh, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and that one is, well, it's, it's the most consumer, maybe... Like accessible, mm-hmm. I want to say it, it's something you can do at home. You like you can take a the, the RepRap RepRap designs are all FDM printers, or almost all FDM printers. Um, and if you can make a two D printer, it's basically taking a two D printer and adding a couple of extra axes and some software to control them. So you like with Arduinos and good stepper motors and some finely machined rods, you can make an FDM printer yeah, at home. And importantly, the filament is cheap and there's no cleanup. Right. right. We're talking filament. Just a, a, a cheap and non-toxic also. I mean, you can do PLA filament, which is Good. which is like it's made of cornstarch. So uh, the other two ones, we'll go to the other end first. SLS is more of a high end. That's the... It's laser the, centering something. Yeah. Selective laser centering. Um, and th- that's the one that you get the the chalky powdery the when you think of shapeways. Yeah, if you look um, at if you look at um, the neat thing about SLS is you can do print in place me- mechanisms because you can uh, because you have a very fine control over the resolution of the print. You can actually print air gaps and stuff, and the material is supported by the by the the bucket of that's powder that it's in. Yeah, so you don't you, overhangs are no problem. You can do all sorts of really cool stuff like weird geometric shapes. I mean, yeah. we have that um, the, um, the virus model. That we're somewhere in the office over there, like really cool things, but the the prints are maybe a little more fragile because they can they can um, they can snap. Both of these have structural problems. I mean, the FDM stuff of structural has problems. a shearing problem where it's really strong on the compressive layer on the z against the z axis it was printed on, but if you if you hit it on the x or y axes, usually the part the layers just break apart. You can twist, kind of force. twist them yeah. apart, and then the, the SLS ones they they're can, fragile. They're fragile. They can shatter. Yeah. Um, and then there's SLA. Which is kind of this middle road where um, it's using curing, curing resin using lasers. So this is what so the Form One uses. Form One, the Spark from Autodesk. Um, yep, 
and that's from a pool of resin, and it, the platform actually is inverted, where the, uh, you, the platform rises out of the resin, and then the resin is selectively cured by lasers. So technically, it's still layer by layer, but what you get is a more structurally sound um, plastic piece. I, actually, it's not that. That's not it. The layers are very small, so imperceptible yeah. layers. It's, it's imperceptible. Like a higher yeah. resolution of FDM. But right. they're still they're still really fragile um, prints, and because they're UV, because the resin is UV reactive, you have to apply a clear coat or something that's going to block UV, or else the material breaks down over yes. time. And then there's a, a curing process. I mean, there's a, a cleaning, cleaning process yeah. after after it comes out. Um, but that's like the, from, from the vat. Um, this 3D printer from Carbon 3D uh, is a version of SLA. So it's still a pool of resin, but instead of using uh, a laser to do uh, just the curing, they're also uh, putting the light in the bottom through an oxygen window. And what that does, and I'm not exactly sure Explain how this the works. physics to me. Norm. I, I don't know. I don't know the physics. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not a scientist. Um, what they claim that does is that it allows them to selectively not only cure the resin, but also inhibit, inhibit the curing um, with the oxygen. Now, why so, do I want the cure to in, be inhibited? Because they're, because they're not, if you're using a laser, you can be very precise, but I don't think they're using a laser. Okay. They're using a flood, a big light, mm. a big projector on the bottom. And so they get bigger area and more curing at once. And so it's not as precise as the laser, but because... But to compensate for that, they infuse the oxygen in there to diffuse. So basically, they're light. they're using the oxygen as a negative to bubble up through and and block the UV from the dark. What should be the the uncured parts of the plate? Mm -hmm. This but, all seems like vapor to me still. So the the demos they've shown and the videos they've shown it looks a lot like SLA. Have people seen this running in real life, or have they just seen videos? I think P uh, very they selective press had, they had had at ten very, people have selective access. Okay. Um, it they claim they say claim, uh, it's twenty five to one hundred percent faster than uh, FDM. I don't know what the hell that compares to SLA. The, SLA is SLA is slow. It's it's a slow process. Yeah. Uh, the video they showed, which was running at seven times uh, real. Real speed uh, was still much faster than SLA. Yeah, the they so the video that they have is of the Eiffel Tower coming out of the out of the print upside down, which um, you shouldn't take as that being real time. I think a lot of people are confused. Yeah, they and, don't and, they don't explicitly say that. Which is, I think the other video, the one we embedded, it said seven X on the bottom. Yeah, so, okay. Um, it's that, seven, that was with a piece of geometry, wasn't it? Right. Yeah, the the one that they have the it's called Carbon Three D Super Fast Three D Printer printing an Eiffel Tower implies strongly that it's printing the Eiffel Tower in about four minutes. Which, which is which is for that type of, of piece is still amazing. Oh, it's if, incredible. If we're talking about yeah. like five five to ten minute print for that complexity, but they also claim that because of their curing process, it's structurally more sound than SLA. And are we, are they claiming that the uh, layer heights are on par with SLA resolution? That's that's a we, that's the, a good There's question. There's a lot of good questions. So a lot, okay. of, and that's one of these things that I think if. I mean, we're talking about prototyping still, right? So the layer, I mean, resolution, structural integrity, all of these matter only to a certain extent. But when you're talking about making prototypes, one of the things that does matter the most is speed and the fidelity and speed ratio. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't think they're making things that you want. I mean, we're not going to get, it doesn't make sense to 3D print something that you're going to use you know, as, a, as a final object with, no. with something like this. There are other processes that may be better for that, um, you know, mold making, casting. Um, but for rapid prototyping well or for making negatives or positives for mold making or mm -hmm. casting something like uh, this is incredible this could be it could be incredible 
Um, a lot of it, like a lot of this, the, the, the thing that we've found by talking to people who actually use 3D printing in a professional capacity um, is that most people aren't interested in 3D printing things that are going to be used outside of like, you know, things like the steam controller, like the ones that they handed out steam dev days were all 3D printed casings because they wanted to 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 have a have something they could give people quickly and didn't want to go to the expense of making a mold or something like that. I mean, you know how expensive it is to do injection molds. Yeah. Um, so five figures. Yeah, it, it's crazy expensive. So when you're looking to make, say, 300 of something, it may be easier to run off a few hundred on on 3D printers or rent 3D printer time. The the people who are using 3D printers to to actually prototype things are then taking those molds and using them to make negatives or make positives so they can they can kind of ki- bypass a lot of the the time consuming and expensive part of um of of casting you know of doing injection molds so then either they do silicon molds or something like that like Frank has taught us how to do or you can there's a bunch of other different ways you can do this stuff but um, I, I'm interested in this. I want to see it running in person. Yep. I don't. I don't believe anything I see in YouTube videos at this point. But one interesting aspect you told me is that unlike other SLA printers, this does not require a cleanup phase. That's right. That's one of the things they said. That's it, cool. Yeah, it doesn't require a cleanup phase. Uh, limitations that people have said a small from the old demos. It seems like because a lot of it's based on projector and you need the even projector lighting. Yeah. Uh, the focus projector. It is limited. That limits the build platform. The build. The pool size. It has to be small, right? Uh, has to be kind of small. Um, unless they get more projectors or or build that system in, but I think what they want to demo is this as a, a an alternative technique for curing the resin, and then build on that. Yeah, I I don't know if this is going to be I don't know if it's even smart for them to even make this consumer product to, as a, as their goal. Yeah, this could be a build the fifty thousand dollar machine first, sell a ton of those, and then f- eventually figure out the process and get it down this to is, consumer product. This is a thing that 3D systems or, or Stratasys or somebody will buy if, they, if, it, if it is a promising technology. I don't think they have enough money. I think I think if they were getting venture capital... Already, they, got, if, they took $41 million so far. Dude, what? That's, Carbon 3D? Yeah. That's a fuck ton of money. It It is a fuck ton of money. For evaluation. It depends on... The valuations don't matter. The, uh, I'm, I'm the point that, is what somebody's willing to pay and what the, part, what the people who did, put the 41... If the 41 million people... Dollar people can get two hundred and fifty million out of it now. That, then that's a that's a crazy amount of money. It's, 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 I think if that, this if this changes the way SLA, if this it, it, overnight makes SLA and FDM printing obsolete and is patentable, then Stratasys or three D Systems is going to buy them or want to or but try whether to they can, whether they can. I think the fact whether they can or not depends on how much money. Well, these um, people think they can make these people think they can make. And more importantly, the investors think they can make because the people at the end of the day probably don't matter as much as the guys who chucked over forty one million dollars. Sure. sure. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, this is a materials thing, though. I mean, the technology for the printer side is interesting. The material stuff is the is the real magic. Because if they if they're doing the oxygen, if they if they're using oxygen, 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 oxygen toward the um the the photolithography process, then that that means the resin is the special sauce. The printer is just the printer is easy. The resin is special. I mean, it's not it easy. Is, it is a combination of different types yeah. of resin. And the question is, differently the, that has a whole other set of questions, like how does the resin hold up? Mm-hmm. Is it really something you can have no cleaning phase on? I mean, I know that that I don't want to handle the SLA resin without gloves on. It's, it's It smells bad to the point that you know that you don't want to have it on your skin. Um, like I'm saying, it's for, for prototyping. And can they manufacture the resin in enough quantity to fulfill demand? Because yes. this printer is useless without the special resin. Mm-hmm. So. And, and even things like the Form One, you got to buy them. You got to buy a lot of 
a lot of a lot of tubes. Yeah, I mean, at least the Form One uses a uses normal SLA resin though, so you can theoretically, and when there's enough market, there will be like like there is now with PLA and ABS filament. You can get that anywhere. You can get it from Amazon. You don't have to buy it direct from MakerBot like we did three years ago, four years ago. Um, so you know, it, it's it's it all depends on whether you can get the resin and whether they can manufacture it in quantity to to suit demand. I I am. So- Super interested. I mean, like we've we've talked about limitations of FDM for so long, and companies and, like MakerBot have kind of s- stuck that path. Well, but, and talking to Sean, the SLA stuff has has, has a different mm-hmm. set of equally challenging limitations. Yep. I don't think that this is going to not have limitations. This doesn't. You know, you're still going to have the problem sticking the model onto the onto the platform and all the same problems mm-hmm. that, that Sean's found with the SLA stuff. But it still there's has no magic bullet. No, it's, still ha- it's a it's different, still, completely different angle right. that we haven't seen before. It still has all the same overhang problems. As, mm-hmm. as FDM as, and, and as SD, S, uh, yeah, SLA, where you have to build an angle just upside and, down. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, but that it's easier to solve the overhang problems with support material when it's hanging upside down than it is when it's hanging right side up. Is why? Our, um, because the the pieces that need to support it are thinner. You don't have to build onto a rail. Hmm. Imagine building a, a mobile versus building a bridge. So your arches for the bridge have to be fairly big. When you're doing a mobile, you can just do one a monofilament line and it'll hold it up. Yeah, and I, I don't. I think a lot of people don't think of three D printing as a materials problem to solve, more as a, as a process. But it is way more. I mean, the the process is all informed by the materials. So, so many of the interesting problems of the twenty first century are materials problems. Plastics. Yeah, it's the future. Um, so I mean, we've reached out to them. We'll see. Um, we'll see more uh, as soon as we can. As soon as they're ready to show stuff, I hope. Um, Nintendo, this is huge news. It is. We've talked about this for, let's say, since the iPhone was launched now. Uh, Nintendo announced that they're going to do smartphone games featuring Nintendo characters designed mostly in-house, and they're partnering with a company called D-E-D-N-A. So D, I think it's D-E-N-A. Okay. Spelled D-E. So D-N-A. My autocorrect kept changing this to D-E-D-N-S. Which is a really dumb uh, name. DNA, which is a big publisher of uh, mobile software, mobile games in Japan. Uh, well, in um, the U.S., so they do a lot of Disney, Disney and Star Wars stuff. Like those, those free to play Disney, uh, Star Wars, and Marvel games are all DDNA. Nintendo DNA. says no ports. No, no ports. No ports. Um, games develop in house. No ports is good. Just to be clear, uh, yes. I don't want touchpad control. I, I don't want you to do touchscreens to play Super Mario Brothers. It's going to be fucking terrible. So you want to have a game that's designed to work with the platform. I really think this is too little too late. It, it, would, really? it would absolutely make them some money. But I think the strength of their characters. I don't think so. If they make good games, these are going to be massive sellers. Because every kid likes both Mario and the iPad. <laughs> every kid. true. Every kid. It's, yeah, it's true. Universal. Uh, they also, they said that they are announcing, uh, th- they tease the next con- next console, the Wii U follow-up. Yeah, the NX. will be a new, yeah, the NX, next generation system, whatever whatever it's called, and it will have a, a new control, a new new paradigm, just like the last few have had. So what, hold on, what was this? I'm sorry, I was reading about Nintendo stock. Uh, in, in announcing the DNA partnership, they yeah. also said that they are working on uh, a new console. Oh, right. And we'll have a new, it will be a new approach. Well, so if you think about that, I hadn't really considered it, but Nintendo, like, Nintendo has been very innovative 
in control schemes, especially over the years. They were the first people to shoot ship an analog stick with the N64 and that weird tri-controller. They invented the D-pad, dude. Right, they invented the D-pad. <laughs> um, I mean, they invented the gamepad, just to be clear. When right. they invented the D-pad, that was right. the invention of the gamepad. Uh, the the uh, GameCube, while the controller wasn't particularly innovative, it's still one of my all-time favorite game controllers. That it's Ball really comfortable in your hand. Yeah. Love it, love it. Um, also, shoulder buttons. All shoulder that. buttons yeah. were there. Well, but we had shoulder buttons on that generation from, on this, uh, from well, this, PlayStation. The SNES had shoulder buttons. That's true. Yep. That's true. Uh, and then the motion stuff with the Wii and, and all that. I, like, I don't think anybody's surprised that they're working on a new console, given the sales on the Wii U. Um, the 3DS is still doing really well. The new 3DS is sold well in, in uh, Japan and the U.S. I don't know about Europe yet. Um, and their stock is up 25%. Two days in a row. Holy cow! Are you serious? Yeah, um, like they, they've had two massive spikes wow. at least since the since this announcement. Uh, this was on consumer they, confidence, yeah. investor confidence. So, I mean, here's the thing: Nintendo's not in dire straits. They've had a, the Wii U has been a failure, um, even though it's been a cr- kind of critical success with the software that came out in the last two years. Uh, but but I mean, the 3DS is still making enough money. It's not as big a success as the DS was, but it's still making money. Which is, you know, they're they're not, Nintendo's not going away. They're not like Sony. It's not like they're in a in a, you know, they're divesting of of different divisions and stuff like that. I think this is a forward looking, you know, th- this is them hedging their bets that, you know, if if handheld mobile games like the 3ds and the Vita continue to wane, especially in Japan, where by all reports kids just play Puzzle and Dragon now. Um, it's 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 smart for them to get their franchises on those platforms where they can where they can make money there. If they don't do that, they're leaving money on the table. We've been saying that forever. Yeah, I just never thought they'd do it. So but, the the thing that's worries. Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say they have released Mario games for third party platforms in the past, but it's been a very long time. What when oh for 3DO? There was a Zelda for 3DO, right? That sounds right. I was actually looking on Wikipedia trying to find them. I don't remember when they, what they were. That sounds right. But I do remember most of the times that they've done this, they have not been terribly successful. Yeah. Like Mario teaches typing. I mean, partnerships are tough. The interesting thing about this was that, that um, Iwata said they're developing most of the stuff in-house. They're consulting with DNA on free on, on payment modeling. They're not ruling out free-to-play modeling. But he explicitly says... Um, I under this is in a time interview about this announcement. Um, Iwata says, I understand that unlike the package model for dedicated game systems, the free to start type of business model is more widely adopted for games on smart devices. And it will naturally be an option for us to consider. Um, on the other hand, the business model continues to change accordingly for each child. We will discuss with DNA and decide the most appropriate payment method. So specifically to your question, which was, Hey, what about free to play? Uh, both can be options. And if a new Nintendo like innovation comes of it, then all the better. On the other hand, Nintendo does not intend to choose payment methods that will hurt our brand image or our IP, which parents feel comfortable letting their children play with. So no, presumably we're not going to see Smurf village type situation where kids rack up $600 or thousand dollars of free to play transactions. Um, and get everyone involved in trouble. I, I'm really interested in this. I would love to see some some Nintendo designed games for smartphones. I think that could revitalize. Like right now, when you go to the App Store on iOS or Android and look at the games that are out there, it's really hard to find something that I'm going to be compelled and interested in playing. 
and quality control is something that's going to be important to them. And I think that the mistake they would they could make is not charging enough for their games. Well, I mean, there's two ways to look at that, though. Look, Square Enix does 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 this, actually Square Enix does this pretty well. They have a partnership with this company as well. Oh, really? and they release some games that are free to play, and then they also release ports of like old Final Fantasy and Chrono Trigger and stuff like that for high premium. Uh, app store prices. I think the Final Fantasy games are still fifteen bucks a pop, sometimes twenty. So, so I mean, that, like this is like if we have a model that that rides somewhere in between. And I would like to see some of the games that do make sense with non Twitch controls ported over. Like, I think any of the turn based stuff that Nintendo's released over the years, the Super Mario RPGs and all that, you, there's no reason you couldn't play that on a smartphone or adapt it to work on a smartphone. Um, no ports. No ports. I know. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's. I mean, I th- I think this is. They, they say they're de- building a joint development structure with DNA, um, but they 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 want to bring people in who have competency in building smartphone games to to work with their teams that are good at building traditional game platform games. I think this is a huge announcement. I can't wait to see what comes next, um, and I can't wait to see the, the see what the games look like. I hope. I hope. I don't think. I, I think that it's not going to stop people from. It's not Nintendo from making. The best they, games they can for, for their console, own platforms. For their own platforms. Of course, that's that's yeah. where that's where, you know, you, and even if they make more money on the smartphone games in terms of dollar value, I couldn't ever see them abandoning their own consoles and platform. No, well, like, like Sega did. Yeah, I mean, look at how that worked out for Sega. Sega right? didn't have the same characters though, but I can't see Nintendo becoming a character company, becoming I, a Disney. I basically. mean. The, well, the other thing that that Nintendo has going for it is the people that are forward facing, the faces of the games that 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 the, the faces of the game makers are are aging rapidly. I mean, Miyamoto is not getting younger, Awada is not getting younger. Like they have to have a generational shift at some point in the not too distant future, or else people are going to lose faith that you know if when Miyamoto retires, who makes the next Mario game, right? That's I think they're scary. Yeah. Who who's in charge of Zelda when Miyamoto I, I guess somebody else has been in charge of Zelda for a while now. But anyway. You know they don't allow him to ride his bike to work. Have I said that on this podcast? Because it's too dangerous for yeah. him? Yeah. Yeah. They're, he's a cherished treasure. Yeah. So so I mean I I hope that we'll start to see um more kind of forward looking stuff from Nintendo. Their goal has always been to be a hundred and twenty five year company, right? It's something they've said for a long time. What do you mean? They had a, tw- a hundred year plan. Right. Or f- when they when they started the company. They they In, take Nintendo? a long view. Yeah. So um I believe they've been around since the eighteen hundreds. Yeah, they well they used to make playing cards. Yeah. Yeah. And pachinko. Um Apple's doing an open beta for iOS. This is new. They did an open beta for OS ten last summer, right? I think that uh that leads credence to the, the the idea that this year WWDC, uh, the big iOS emphasis will be uh, on stability and refining uh, the experience. Since they've, it's been two years now since we've had new new Chrome, a uh, big redesign, and so less on features, more on refining the experience. I, I hope that they do that for both OS ten and iOS. Frankly, I mean the 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 OS ten the last OS ten release is real up and down. I really like some of it, but some of it's still really slow. Oh, in terms of bugs or features? Just in general. Yeah. 
the like the like the continuity stuff finally works now after the last OS 10 and, and iOS updates. But it, it's one of the that's one of those things that it, you know the old joke about Apple stuff that's great if it works and as soon as it doesn't you're completely boned. Yeah, right. When when continuity stuff wasn't working for me, there was basically no way for me to fix it other than to create a new user profile and sign the old one out of iCloud, everything out of iCloud, and then sign everything back into the new iCloud. Profile. That also makes me think that we're not going to see. Force touch on iOS this year, and that'll be a next year feature. You think that'll be the big iPhone 7 selling point? That I mean, that makes sense to hold. Although, for I can see that both ways. Force touch, well, we'll talk about force touch in a minute, but force touch would be a huge shift for developers and users. And while it would be, I I could see them eventually making that a whether it's this year or next year, uh, the, the flagship, the S feature. I think we're I think much more likely soon. to see new the new haptics in the iPhone 6 Plus or 6G, whatever they're going to call it. Yeah, they can get the magnets in, yeah. Yeah. You don't think that goes part and parcel with the Force Touch? I think you can do one without the other. Mm-hmm. After seeing how this trackpad works, I think... Yeah. I think you're going to see... I would think we're going to see Force Touch more before the haptics because the Force Touch... But if you think about it, the haptics are a small, are a small upgrade. Think, oh, hey, this is something you're going to notice in your pocket more. Right. In terms of like feel the the, the immediate effect, yeah. hap, you get better, way more benefit from haptics. But putting that in a phone, uh, I think is more challenging than a screenless Probably. touchpad. I think the I think the big I think the big thing that we're going to see this year on iOS is Apple Watch integration. I think that this is a, t- a the typical situation where they roll out something new. They have six months after they roll it out to figure out exactly how people are using it and what people want in terms of integration, mm. and then then they'll add that in in time for the God. for the iOS but what an nine S feature. release. Yeah, what would that S feature be though? Because yeah. that sounds more like software features. I think the that's why I think the haptics thing is an easy S feature if yeah. they can fit. Oh, it I, mean, the I mean, I'm saying what what an S feature that would be. Yeah. That would make me feel real shitty about buying an iPhone six last year. Did you buy an iPhone six no, last year? But, but it oh. would make me feel shitty. Well, I buy a new phone every year. It's no big deal. <laughs> Not for most people. Yeah, no, but I mean, most people, you, well, we'll see. Like talk about splitting, splitting the user base. The force touch? Force touch as a right click. Or I mean, from developer perspective, you can do so much with a force touch. I don't know that I don't. You could do. I'm not saying you have to. You, you get, could you, do. But you got to support all the old users, too. The force touch is the least interesting thing about the old trackpad is the thing. Is, is, the is new the, trackpad? Yeah, the, the the hard press is the least interesting thing about the trackpad on the new laptop. Like the the, the haptics are much more interesting is to it, me. Is it analog so that you can press harder and harder and harder? Uh, it is pressure sensitive. What is exposed right now is that you just click and then press hard. Yeah, and but then yes, something happens. Right. But presumably, it's pressure sensitive yes. as well. So the, in the in the it could be you know they they have. Tr- it's smart to do a cutoff where it's only two two presses, but presumably it can be as sensitive as the sensor mm-hmm. is. I mean, Apple. If you look at how Apple rolls out new new interface stuff, they just started defaulting the three finger swipes and all that stuff on a few generations ago uh, with with OS ten. So, like, I'm not holding my breath for for magic on that front really quickly. I think they'll. I think that what they'll do is roll out the feature do something that's cool but is Apple only and isn't accessible to developers for a generation and then once that generation's done then they'll roll out the 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 wide stuff to avoid that hey everybody's fucked and then it's people who have two years worth of phones are supported rather than people who have one year worth of phones um, as an Apple user I'm super psyched that they're doing these betas not because I want to test 
yeah. the OSs, but because I want them to be bug free when they're released. And that has been a problem. I want people to hammer on them. Exactly. And yeah. the, the OSs, both on phone and desktop, are so complicated compared to when they were released. And software is a, de- a house of cards. I can understand why there's so many issues, but there are going to be more issues now. Mm-hmm. So good for Apple doing the betas. Um, the, there's pricing news about the HTC Vive. Let's, let's just do a VR roundup here. Mm. Pricing news about the HTC Vive, the Steam VR goggles. How many dollars? They're, they're the Vive. Vive? It's Vive. 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 It's, it's Vive. Let's make sure what was called Vive. Vive. Like Viva Pinata? Like Revive. Well, that's the oh. weird thing. The actual logo has a little RE in front of it. Yeah. Have you noticed that? It has so a, it Revive. Has a, it has a stylized RE in front of the Vive, but no one calls it that. It's Vive. Vive. All right, I'm going to continue to mess that up. I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now. So how much is... is we'll call it Steam VR. How much was my good. Oculus Rift uh, DK2? $300. $300. It's just the headset. And the, and, the, and the camera. Can you still buy that? That's right. Probably. Yeah, you can. The DK2? Yeah. Yeah. 300 That's all? It was just $300? It might have been 400 I don't no, know. No, no, no. I, I thought it was might have been. 300 or 300 Let's not get this wrong. I'm clicking right Norm's now. Fact it's checking. $350 for oh. a DK2. <laughs> What and, a ripoff. And <laughs> fuck those guys. Wow. And what Oculus has said is that they want, you know, one of the advantages of being bought by Facebook is that they want to get hardware out there to the most affordable way possible. Yeah. They don't need to make margins on hardware to be yeah. successful as a company. Yeah. They want to get the platform out there. Now, now that doesn't mean that whatever their consumer version is going to be and whenever that's released, it's going to be $350. But they have implied that it'll be around that price, you know, three fifty to four hundred dollars. I would, I would hope that it stays closer to three hundred, three hundred fifty bucks for a consumer release. Now, that's also presuming no controller. And in our minds, it was also it, we, we for the longest time had assumed that no controller and had been okay with that. Using get, a gamepad, sticking a throttle. Exactly. You yeah. get a camera. You get you get the the goggles if they're still using IR tracking the same way. With HTC Vive. HEC has come out and said, expect a higher price point for the because you're not only getting the headset, which we're talking about. You did the research, Jeremy. We're talking about eight cents a, a sensor. No, no, I didn't say eight, eight cents. No, someone else did eight cents online. Oh God, that um, would be super cheap compared to what I saw. What did I you mean, say? I saw if you bought thousands of them, they still cost about a dollar. A dollar so, per per, per yeah. the, the so, sensors. So I mean, assuming they're, they're maybe cut that in half, it's still quarters per chip. Right? HTC has the ability to buy in large volume. Absolutely. Yeah, ab- yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's still not going to be eight cents, I don't think. So we're talking about, you know, a, 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 a not cheap uh, headset or not using cheap technology plus two controllers, wireless controllers with, you know, not ex- not cheap technology, linear actuators and motors and stuff. And also two base stations. Well, hold on. We can assume that the price on the controllers minus the optical stuff is going to be Given that it's two pads and a couple of buttons, it'll be in the same price range for them to manufacture as the Steam controller, which is right? fifty bucks. Fifty so bucks. Fifty bucks. So for figure fifty bucks price for that for two controllers, for two controllers you think? plus the plus the optical sensors I, at uh, between eight cents and a dollar each. The controllers have to have their own transmitters in them yeah. and all the logic. So okay, so it's double the let's say double the cost on the transmitters. So say a hundred dollars, which re- I think that's a reasonable. I think that's price. aggressive, but okay. You think that that's high? I think that's high for hundred dollars for two it's wireless between controllers. Fifty and hundred. Let's say between yeah. fifty and hundred because like people are. I mean, all these start Kickstarters we are way like off the stem. deep end here, guys. So it's dangerous territory. Between fifty and hundred consumer pricing for controllers, uh, two wireless controllers, base stations. I'm say you uh, mean the lighthouses? Lighthouses sensor dumb. There's no signal. Fifty bucks for two lighthouses. That seems sounds, right sounds reasonable. For me. 
<laughs> a laser again, and some spinning mirrors. Laser spinning mirrors. High, high in the sky here. <laughs> again, yeah, a speculation. 150 conservatively for controllers and, and lighthouses, plus a headset, which could be 300 bucks. Let's say that. We're talking about $500. Isn't it two screens? It is. Uh, so it's... Yeah, I think two screens matters. Yeah, you need the it's cost. It's, There's yes. more drivers, more screen drivers, all that stuff. But the chipset does two up. I mean, the chips can handle two screens. Really? The, like the the Crescent Bay stuff. You, they sell the the chips now. They can do two outputs. Like the phone, 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 stuff. phone. I mean, the, the stuff they're buying. Okay. Um, do we know if there's going to be some sort of console that everything plugs into on the PC side, like a little head unit, uh, a breakout box? You mean? Yeah. Uh, maybe. Maybe. I don't know if it'll probably come with a strap, the, the, the gonna, cable yeah, management come with the, strap. With the, with the butt strap? The USB um, hub strap? So, we're Basically, it sounds like it's going to cost a million dollars from where we're at right now, if my math is right. The thing is, it sounds more like $500. It and sounds more, yeah. Which, now that I think about it, that sounds great, because that, I was ready to drop $1,000 at GDC. <laughs> yeah, yeah you were, you, I'm sure you walked out of that room with your credit card out. Yeah, I was just holding money out. So what no, I was, I nobody was took it. I was like, hey, hey, Chet, I'll take one right now. Give me, I'll swipe. I know I so cash. many people, uh. you know, on the Oculus forum, or on the, the Reddit o- slash Oculus forums, choppy the bit, ready to pay to get a Vive dev kit. Um, don't I, don't, I, don't get buy a, Vive a dev don't kit. if you're a consumer, don't buy a, a Vive. Just like don't, we d- didn't recommend people you buy a DK one or DK two. I know they're not gonna they're not gonna and make I this widely available either. Here's the I thing: I want one. I, the, hell yeah, I want one. The Vive dev, dev kit, they're not going to just put on a store. You're going to have to you're gonna have to be a Steam developer, and you'll have to go through a whole rigmarole. You're not going to be able to just go buy one. They did say, they, on the web page, it says select developers. Yes. Select but it. at the recent um, South by Southwest uh, interview, Chet said they'll have a web page where you can buy one. Because somebody oh. asked that question. Yeah. A web page where you can sign up. Is that, that what is, he said? He said sign up. Oh, okay. There'll be a web page where you can sign up yeah, for okay. more information. It'll be so it's very carefully it's worded. Not, that. It's it's not going to be like uh, there. It's not going to be curated in terms of like Valve. Only you can only get one if Valve reaches out to you. Yeah. You will be able to request yeah. the ability to buy one. Uh, I, don't, I have no idea about in terms of units. Obviously, they want more out there, and a lot of people have. They Oculus. want a lot of people building games. Yeah, and, and there are you know, tens of thousands of people with uh, tens of thousands of uh, Oculus it, dev mean, kits. It seems like they're focusing really strongly at first on indie teams that can iterate quickly and release something. I mean, the, so the Idle Thumbs guys on either well, this week they, or last week's already. podcast. By necessity. Yeah, by, by necessity. They, they've done that in the, the first pass. You're, you're, the second you need pass. to put your headphones on because you're not talking in the microphone again. They, 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 they've done that with the first pass. Reaching out. No, I know, I, but I think that they're going to continue focusing on indies because you're not going to get a AAA game done in time for launch this this Christmas. But you want to get it in their hands, you, of as course, soon as possible. That'll work itself out. EA is going to or Ubisoft will buy as many of these as they think they need. I think I think one they have their own AAA development team at Valve who undoubtedly is working on on something for this. Dota three. Uh, something for this, something for Vive. I don't think Valve would Steam, Valve would launch Steam VR Left 4 Dead and a platform 3, without 3. wanting to make their own game for it and also learn the lessons of VR in that process, or teach the lessons, or teach yeah. and, and be able to spread that. You know, the next Valve Dev days, they've we know they've already reached out to Indies because they have fast turnarounds. But I don't think that is mutually exclusive with them oh, no, no, already no. seeding AAA developers with kits. For you know next year's but, E3. So here's the thing: they would have had to, if they wanted games out in time for the the consumer launch of this this fall, that are AAA huge games. Unless they're mm-hmm. just 
you know, small subsets like the stuff that Capcom did with Dead Rising 2 and, you know, like, like or, or the Far Cry 3 Blood Dragon, you know, the kind of small side games using existing assets or existing engine. Like, that stuff takes a long time to build. And it's not like an 18-month turn anymore. It's two or three years. So they would have had to be seeding stuff ages ago if you have to build this stuff from the beginning for VR. I think we're underestimating the ability of a a studio to make a game a compelling game does I it doesn't need to be a 300 million dollar game but a compelling game in one year and I think it's not mutually exclusive at all like while they announce a, a partnership with indies and like you know had, had the wall of indie logos mm-hmm. at GDC and South by Southwest and brought people on stage there's I don't no think reason. we're going to see an Assassin's Creed game using this no, this fall. Uh, not this fall. Like, there's no market. The other thing about the AAAs is they're super risk averse. So, he, right. like, here, Valve can afford to pay a three-man team and just say, look, we're going to guarantee you this much money, whether it sells or not, because we need to have software on our platform. They can't... They, they can do... 200 of those for what it would cost to do one AAA title. Yeah. And and they're and they're much better off having 200 games at launch than one huge game. And and well, spe- I don't think again, they're not mutually exclusive. Then speaking of risk aversion. Yeah, it is cuz EA's not sorry, Jeremy. Yeah. EA's not going to invest 30 million dollars in a in a game for a platform that doesn't well, I'm exist. I'm saying from Valve's pla- from Valve's perspective, it's not mutually exclusive for them to see well, right. these out. The AAA game EA. we're going to see is kind of going to come from Valve. That that goes without saying. They're, I bet that's the only AAA thing we see. I, at launch, I don't think we'll see a AAA game at launch. I think we'll see a, a Half-Life Three. Jeremy. I would uh, well, confirmed. I don't think it. But we'll actually see Half-Life Three in VR. We'll probably see something in the Portal universe, maybe something in the Half-Life universe, but it yeah. won't be a full-fledged AAA game. I think that's right. I, I think that just because we Proof haven't heard anything from quote-unquote AAA developers, what is and a, what is a VR AAA game? Yeah, because you can't you can't do a first-person shooter. I, I think that's know. and I think when we talk about production quality. A quote unquote triple A game is, you know, a lot many more artists than you would typically think working on, the, on any game, more assets. 1,200 um, people work on Assassin's Creed every I'm, year. And I'm not saying it's that. Right. I don't think, I, again, it's not black or white, I, but I think that, I don't think that it's just going to be the three man, five man team making know. games. I agree with Will. I think right it's now. too early to take the risk on a triple A uh, budget for Look, VR because yes. there's so many things to experiment with in the low end first. The triple A guys release a, one franchise a generation. I, I don't think it needs to be a hundred million dollar game. <laughs> well, but but. If you look at EA, their statement is, look, we make AAA games and we make free-to-play shit because those are the only two places you can make money on an EA scale. You right? It doesn't need to be AAA to entice people either. No, that would be, it'd be a waste yeah. of money, frankly. Yeah. I can't wait to play Job Simulator. I swear to God. I would pay $1,000 <laughs> to play Job Simulator. Right now? Yeah. I bet you can, I bet you can call Alex up right now. I just want to blow up balloons. Al- Alchemy Labs and, and say, You can fly to Austin. Here's, here's $1,000. Can I play Job Simulator Dude, for... if they put that up on Kickstarter, that would fill up instantly. As a come, come play Job Simulator. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, I think... Uh, what what are your guesses on price point? I think everybody agrees sub thousand dollars. Well, the here's whole thing. the thing: if it's five hundred dollars, which what we're talking about, yeah. that means Valve has adopted the same philosophy as Oculus, which is give the hardware away for cost and right. make your money on the back end on, on the. So what, on that the implies then they're paying money to HTC for each unit sold because I don't think HTC don't think is in the business of selling <laughs> stuff right. for nothing, especially since yeah. they're not going to be the exclusive. Or if right. they're going to get some sort of kickback from Steam sales, right. which so they won't. Right. Think about business model. Where does Valve? Valve wants to make money. They make money from Steam. Yeah, a ton of money from Steam. Their Steam dump account. truck loads. That's their that's their whole model now. I mm-hmm. think everything is about Steam sales. Yeah. Um. 
So they want to build a platform that can distribute games and they can take a cut off of. Uh, they want people to buy in a, their platform as opposed to um, a more, a way more closed off platform. Because mm. if you take, talk about closed platforms, you know both Steam and Oculus are technically closed platforms in terms of the the, the commerce. Yep. Uh, but Steam, at least, you can distribute on Steam and other places. Mm. I don't know how Oculus will work. Uh, so. Currently, What's, the, the Oculus has a store. Has a store, yeah. right? But and you know, it's not exclusive. Um, What's what's in it for Valve? They want to have a platform to sell PC games that destroys Windows, Sony, and Xbox. Right. I mean, that's the that's the goal. Yeah. They want to be the the leader in video games. The day they're releasing the Vive, you know, ideally they will release a box for fifty dollars that allows you to play all your PC games in the same place you play your Xbox. I think so that's it's, happening it's earlier. A, the, even it's November, November, November for yeah. for uh, the SteamOS stuff. It's all November. Oh, it's all November. Yeah. Okay, November for absolutely for SteamOS. I can't stuff imagine that the stream stuff will work with the VR stuff. Though. So maybe that that is right. That's the, that's the play. Uh, VR being a OS, uh, a traditional OS agnostic platform is right. your play. And and if you're looking for something to speed adoption of Linux so that SteamOS takes off, the fact that they're building these games, if they're making Source the way you make these games. Like that, that mission accomplished. That's kind of a limited thing. I mean, you might need source for the this year. Yeah, it's like got to open that up to. Oh no, ages, of course, right? of course. The Vive, yeah, support. I'm sure. I'm sure they're. Look, anybody who wants to make a game for Vive is going to be able to make a game for Vive, right? They're not going to limit. They're not going to say, oh nope, sorry, Unity, sorry, UE4, right. no, no Vive for you. Um, so Chet did do a talk. It wasn't at South by Southwest, but it was at this uh, maybe I think European conference. Uh, it was like a half hour long talk and he brought several game developers, the indie game developers uh, on stage um, who have been making, um, uh, I think, I forget the name of one, but they make like a third third person, like God style, you know. Like populist type game? Uh, more, I, I think more like Lucky's Tale type thing. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, but from that talk, there was some insights about the uh, the Steam VR development process, talking about you know how they got to where they are and some of the lessons learned. Um, it was at EGX Res. E- yep, EGX Res conference, um, and there there are some interesting things. Uh, I think the developers, Bossa Studios and Vertigo Games. Yes, the and, and the game they were making is a I think it's a disembodied you know not first per- traditional first person uh, game um and ha- having that type of game in a walking walking around space mm. like they talked about needing to add like clouds so the player can can walk on and people oh, who are well. in that space mm. um n- not wanting to walk beyond where they could see in the virtual space there being a platform yeah mm. um so even with the games like Lucky's Tale, where if you're sitting down, you know, and, and you could play a platformer, and you're you're looking in, you're you're that, that felt comfortable doing that, like mm-hmm. using positional tracking. But if you are standing up and doing the same type of thing, you know, even walking around a virtual, let's say a virtual uh, risk map or something, or a, a train set, uh, you need to have a representation of the floor for the actual person to walk around, or else they will refuse to walk. In those spaces, so you can lead the person uh, using that. Um, interesting things like that. He talked about when in testing some of the demos. Um, you really the, the art and the assets and the gameplay because you're developing it on a computer screen, presumably, and not in VR. That experience 
you cannot translate that experience until you test it in VR. Like he talked about the whale demo where you can, you can run it so many times on the screen and program it on this, on a, on a monitor. But the, the, what that game becomes when you put on the, the VR goggles and walk around changes it's it, the entire the way you think about making that game. Yeah, for sure. Like you said, when you hopped into the Vive portal demo, mm-hmm. you'd never seen those robots in at, to scale, to scale yeah. with you, yeah. to you, uh, even though on a monitor, regardless of like, if even you're using a 30 inch monitor and a 4k monitor, it's in front of your face and you walk up to, to a, a wall, you know, that's first person, but it's not actual first person. Yep. Um, and then also he talked about like one of the demos he was using like a fishing rod, uh, fishing rod game, um, a simulator, and and how how easily your brain adapts to thinking that that is an actual object. Hmm. Uh, and I think when we're talking about VR controllers, and Oculus has said you know they they they've thought about VR controllers a lot. This wand, this grippable you know s- dowel metaphor that valve has is really strong because so many ways in which we interact with objects in the real world we grip it like like a wand like a stick yes you know whether it's a spatula scissors a gun um an actual magic wand a fishing rod a, a, a you know, uh, a, a whip, um, an umbrella, all these things. And so there are a lot of options. From giving away all personal. your ideas. No, no. <laughs> um, you know what? One of the other developers talked about when they were early in development and they were doing a first person game, they uh, had full fledged arms connected to the, the handles mm-hmm. and they would do inverse kinematics to control where they assumed your elbows were at all times, but it, they would never match up to where your actual elbows were in space. And when you looked down and saw the virtual elbow out of, out of place, it would break the illusion. So, so that's like that Sony demo that we played, the Sony Morpheus one, where um, uh, the uh, the London Heist demo, where at the second half of the demo we were holding guns, but there was actual physical modeling mm. of your arms. Yeah, and we said that was the worst part of it. The guns look great because you actually the the move controllers were one to one with right. the guns, but even their abstracted modeling of your arms, one didn't move exactly like your arms move, yep. and two weren't positioned because everyone has different width shoulders, and that's not being tracked and modeled. Um, well, and also the 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 scale was off. I mean, scale the scale being off was really bad. Yeah. So um, it's just interesting that they would add that, that in order to immerse you further, but it actually has the inverse effect. Right. So Valve's solution to that was just just do the hands. Just do the hands. Fuck it, man. And when you talked about you know using the uh, the, the 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 balloon color demo and you know the, your your fingers being abstracted. Yeah. Um, because of where your thumb position is, I think you, that could still work. Because that is one to one, where your thumb actually touches Absolutely. the circular valve trackpad. So, developers have to find a way to balance between, you know, how much abstracted skeletal modeling can you do based on the information that's available, and what your brain is more susceptible to believing versus more resistant to believing. Huh. It's. I mean, we're just gonna have to test these out when they come out. Hell right? Yeah, man, thousand dollars. Um, I'll, I'll buy one now. Take my money. A uh, couple other things. YouTube supports 360 degree video now. Oh yeah, you can do that with Did the Kodak that? camera. I haven't tried you, it. Well, you mean you can make it with the Kodak? Yeah. You can make it with the but Kodak you camera. Can, you can use Chrome to look at any of this. You just go to YouTube, find a 3D video or a 360 video, and use your mouse to pan around inside the video. So you can watch what's happening behind the camera on all sides of the camera. The whole yeah, thing. It's it, pretty cool. I think it's great. It's. I mean, I 
this came out a week ago. I'd be surprised if there isn't somebody already having it working on the Oculus Rift. Um, and you went to the GPU tech conference yesterday. I did, yeah. I wanted to go to the uh, keynote. I guess they had an interesting talk with Elon we, Musk. We, we, we monopolized your time instead doing something that we're not going to talk about quite yet. Secret project. Secret project. But I went yesterday because uh, there's, a, there's a demo scene um, component. Explain to, demo to G, scene. G, GTC. Uh, demo scene, which I'm sure 2% of your listeners already know very, very Super well. Super into, yeah. Uh, is a, you know, it's kind of a, it's an underground computer community. They've been around since the 80s. They started out of the hacker scene where they would make these graphical intros to games that were hacked and, and cracked, essentially. So they were dirty pirates. They were dirty, dirty pirates, but then they got morals and ethics and they splintered off of the piracy scene and started making these graphic demos just for competition with one another to show off who was the better programmer and then go to these parties and they would compete with one another so and it's like rap battles very much it's actually there's a lot of hip-hop crossover they, okay. they do greets in the same ways that in the 80s and 90s hip-hop would greet one another okay shout um, outs. yeah shout outs essentially and uh it's always been an interest of mine in the 90s, particularly. I found it highly inspiring because a lot of the graphics would be even better than you see in games because they'd have to worry about collision detection and AI and all that stuff. Right, right. Um, and there were small teams as were game developers. But it, And it's interesting because a, like a lot of it originally was about packing the most information into the smallest file, right? And that's, yeah, that, that's, um, that was sort of a necessity back in the day, but it's become an art form in more recent years, the past 15 years they've uh, um had a whole community a part of the demo scene that just does that they pack entire games into 64k just amazing amounts of data into 4k they do procedurally generated graphics mm -hmm. so it's just one one still frame of a graphic that gets generated out of like one or two k of data and it looks like a beautiful pool table or something like that anyway it's like the Olympics for programmers and they get together and they just compete with one another for a little bit of money. This is a thing you've been into since I've known you. Yeah, I used to run. I was one of the only people running a website for it in the 90s called the PC Demo Fan Club. I'm friends with the guys who used to run the Hoarded Archive. Um, so I've, I've always been a part of the community. I made two little mini documentaries for a DVD series called Mind Candy about the demo scene. And I, I just love it. <clears throat> More recent years, I don't follow it as much, but I still, when they're in North America, which is a rare thing, because this is a European community. It seems like it's something that happens in Sweden or Finland or yeah. something, so it's cold most of the year. Right. Um, you just kind of got to go, especially when it's just an, an hour away. So I went to GDC, GTC because NVIDIA has this, um, they have embraced the demo scene and gives them a room every year. Uh, but I also went up to the show floor, uh, NVIDIA's doing some interesting things uh, that I didn't I didn't know about. Uh, they're, they're trying to get into the automobile industry. You guys know about this? Yeah, they've been working on it. Well, Jensen, the CEO of NVIDIA, is a huge car nut. And like, guess what he had on the right there on the exhibit hall? A Ferrari or a Lambo or a Tesla. The Tesla and the Lambo were out front in the lobby, but his i8 oh. was sitting there on, Ooh, in the exhibit hall. The all-electric BMW <laughs> sports car. It's the one from Mission Impossible 4. Was it in that? It's the one that they drive at the end in, in Dubai. In, into the sandstorm? Oh. No, no, no. no. At the oh, end it's the one chasing. that he races through the and does the, the up the, yeah. That it, it's the $125,000 yeah. electric BMW. It's, um, you know, beautiful car. He does, apparently he didn't like it. Oh. So he gave it to his engineers and they retrofitted it with an NVIDIA oh. technology and console. Okay. So they've added this, what they're making on this NVIDIA drive uh, platform, which, you, you know, 
car vendors can buy and implement. And it, it's a, a series of cameras that does deep learning. It can tell what it, where a cop car is and what a van is. And it looks around the car and it, it can just optically recognize everything. So it's basically a like kit. In the street. It's basically a kit. I mean, it's, it's just... Michael. One small step towards uh, self-driving automobiles, which is going to be fun. Well, it's, 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 it's this one, right? You hold your arm up to yeah. cross, cross body and yeah. you say, uh, Kit, I need you at the front entrance. Precisely. Yeah. yeah so they, they had... I'll be right there, Michael. They had uh, simulated cars parking themselves and uh, other such things. So it was, yeah, I, I think it's cool to see NVIDIA branching out into That's exciting. Areas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think if that's it... We are enjoying the dulcet tones of Norm typing in the background. Important things happening right now. Um, I'm going to play some music and mute Norm so we don't hear him typing anymore. And we'll talk about what we've been testing. Jeremy Williams. Word. This weekend, I did an extended test drive with a BMW i3. You and I have talked about this car a lot. I was so jealous because I, <laughs> I have had my eye on this car since I first saw one on the street. And yeah. said, what is that? It looks like a future car. Yeah. It, the pictures make it look much better than it actually looks in person. Well, the one that I had was a <laughs> I, no, profoundly as, ugly color. As, no, no. I'm just saying also, baby, that's how marketing works. Yes. Promo photos. But if you search BMW i3, uh, at least I got a sense that it was a, you know, at least comparable to their X3, the SUV. Um, in terms of size. In terms of size. Yeah. In terms of form factor. It, the photos make it look fantastic. And I haven't seen the, the Tesla X in person, but that's an SUV. Yeah. So I assume that it was going to be like that. Well, this isn't an SUV, though. It's not. It's yeah. not. Which is, again, the photos made me think it was an SUV. Ah. But seeing it in person, this looks way more like a, a bigger uh, smart car. It's, it's, it's a, like a huge smart car. Huge, yeah, it's a yeah, huge smart car. It's still the kind of same form factor, very small, it's short hood. Yeah. Um, or that, and, that Fiat or any of those subcompact cars. Yeah, and, yeah. and look at the wheels. Like The photos are, oh, wow, wow great. It's not like the Prius at all. Cool rims, bro. Cool, really big rims and nice, nice like sporty tires. And it's in person, and the tires are like half as wide as I think uh, tires should look. Norm, it's a it's an all-electric economy it's a it's a car for economical driving, not for sports car driving. It is made not by a sport, but, but the, fancy saying, Lexus. Right. Made by fancy, it's fancy BMW. It, it's kind of it's it's a, <laughs> no, it's, it's that's what it, it is. is made by BMW. It's, it's made a by, fancy electric car, and and I, yes. the, I don't think I can be faulted for thinking you know if BMW made you know I've seen the i8. Well, right. but if it's, the, it's still in the eye line and the i8 purely a you know a, definitely a sports car. I think all I means is it's electric though. I, I, right. Branding is, I don't know the, how their branding works, but, uh, the presumption I saw was like, wow, this is going to be, you know, they've, they've done something. Cause you look at a Tesla, which is an all electric car and they have full size tires. Um, this ended up being less like a Tesla and more like a really souped up, um, Fiat. Yes, Fiat, Fiat 500 yes. All right, well, yes. look, yes. Uh, so or Leaf. A Model S, if you're going to get the good one, you're going to spend close to $100,000. 120 yeah. is if you want 300 miles yes. range. All right, you, the this, the, my i3 maxes out it at like 55000 I think mm -hmm. it's 48. Starts at 41 and then it goes up. It yeah. does one based on what, what options. Yeah. So, so it's it, really strange. So it's I mean, less expensive. I mean, yeah. it's for people who yeah. would love to have a Model S, but maybe would like to spend less money. So here's here's the thing. There's two... There's two types of electric, all electric cars right now. There's cars that mimic normal cars, which is basically the Tesla and the i8 and a couple of the Fisker and a couple of others that have 200 to 300 mile range yeah. equivalent to what you would get on a tank of gas in a, in a luxury sedan. 
then there's the commuter cars, which are the Nissan Leaf, the Fiat 500e, the um, the BMW i3, the Chevy the, the, Spark. What about the Volt? I mean, the Volt's all electric for 30 the miles. Volts, for 30 miles it is. But the Volt's a gas engine, and it can run for 300 miles. Yes, but it's all electric until... For the, the first 30. Yeah. Yeah, and it plugs in. And the new one's 50-mile range. Right. Um the Volt, there's a Chevy, there's an all-electric Chevy that actually tested really highly and I just don't fit into. Um, I think it's called the Spark. There's a, bu- there's a bunch of others. Yeah. Basically, the car manufacturers were strongly incentivized and or required to ba- make these cars by the federal government. This looks, the Spark looks more yeah. like the... But I mean, the BMW looks like that. that this has the same short hood. It's in thing. all of these cars have a specific shape because of aerodynamics, right? They have thin tires and a light shape because the less contact you have with tires on the road, the more efficiency you get out of out of your uh, you get the so less weird. friction on the wheels. It, it doesn't look aerodynamic, but look, is it? I assume that they put these in wind tunnels because every every yeah. bit matters. Yeah. Okay, so th- so my understanding is once you get inside the mm-hmm. interior, the quality of of the components and the the feel of the car, the BMW is going to be the best experience short of a Tesla. That's my experience so far. Okay, like the um, best dash, the best, the best seats. The like best. like it has ha- um, the Chevy Volt. I can't sit in without hitting my head on the ceiling. Oh, right. Like so ergonomically, it's the bad. It's not a good fit mm. for me. Um, Priuses are good. They have lots of headroom, which is nice because of that bulbous roof that they have. Um, but a lot of the pure electrics, especially the smart car, was was. I mean, you've seen that video. It was, it was, uh, yes, but was it was snuggly. Yes, and car. kind of terrifying. <laughs> um, so this is this rides like a real car, as opposed to the smart, which rides rode like a go kart. Um, and I, I still haven't driven a Leaf. I've got to go do that this weekend. Basically, I'm in the market for an all electric car because, given my commute driving profile, my wife has a car that she drives all over the country. I drive about 42, 44 miles a day each way. And I spend as a result of the time in which I drive and the amount of city driving I do like 250 bucks a month on gas. And you found out BMW has this extended test drive, test drive policy, which is awesome. I didn't know about that. So, so it makes a ton of sense for this car, especially because there's a significant shift in driving. if, If you're used to driving a gas car, switching an all electric, I've been worried about like, it's a, it's a big commitment to switch to that and something that's going to cost tens of thousands of dollars, or I'm going to be committed to for a multi-year lease. And, um, like, I didn't know if I could live, like I assumed going in that in order to build an infrastructure at my house for an electric car, I have to put a 240 volt charger in my garage to have level two charging, I think is what that's called. Um, which would let me charge the car in four to six hours or something like that. And, um, you know, and and then I assumed that I probably wouldn't need uh, a gas motor. So uh, some of the electric cars, the i3 is one of them, have a supplemental, basically, motorcycle engine. Range extender, they call they it. They call right? it a range extender. Yeah. But it's basically a motorcycle engine hooked up to a generator yeah. that holds two gallons of gas and will give you an extra 50 or 60 miles of range if you get in a situation where you, where you need that. Um, and I don't often drive in a way that would need to give me 100 miles on a on a charge but we do go to petaluma and napa and the east bay occasionally for work and and it would be nice to be able to do that um so the extended test drive is a two or three night loan um i picked it up on friday returned it on monday afternoon and 
uh, I understand uh, getting in that car. I immediately understood why they did that. Um, because like the Tesla, it does aggressive regenerative charging when you let off the gas. Mm. So when you push down on the gas, it goes just like a normal car. But as soon as you take your foot off the gas, it it charges as if it wants to stop as soon as it can. So that adds friction to the drivetrain and that makes the car slow down, um, which means that it, when you first take off out of the out of the parking lot at the dealership, it's pretty herky jerky. In kind of the same way it is if you're driving like a like a manual transmission car and you're bad at shifting. Is um, that a, is Tesla in that car the only car does that? It's the it? only two that I know of. Well, I know Tesla has an option to adjust that feature. Yes. So meaning that Tesla will add more power and fake the roll. No, I think you sacrifice adding. You power. sacrifice charging. Yeah, you sacrifice. Charging. Can you do that on the BMW? Uh, I would prefer that. So you can switch it from. There's three modes for driving in the BMW. The comfort mode. It seems like it's a little bit less aggressive. Um, at the regenerative driving. At the regenerative braking. Oh, we should the, test that. So uh, we did. It's really hard to it's, tell. Yeah, it's, if it's then that's. Um, the thing. The thing that the thing that actually happened after a couple of hours of driving the car is you get used to the to using the regenerative braking as the brakes. Yeah. So you just let your foot off the brake to stop at stop signs off the gas to stop at stop signs and stuff like that. And it became a one foot driving experience. That's why cruise control is so important. Cruise control is super important in the car. Um, the, the reason I think they do the extended test drive is it takes a little bit of adjustment to get used to right. driving it. And if you just did like a two mile lap around the dealership with somebody in the car with you, you'd be like, nope, fuck this. I'm not buying this thing. Um, but once you get used to it, it's it's quite fun. Plus, they want you to get a feel for the recharge process and get a sense of where you might do that. Right. And, and so the takeaway for me was for my 40 miles a day round trip, 45 miles a day round trip, I actually don't think I need to put a 240 volt charger in my house. 120 is uh, fine. 120 is more than sufficient. Um, and that would be a kind of like a not charge every day. Or I mean, you charge every day, but not fill, charging. It's probably full not full in the morning every day, but that's fine because you you have more weekend charging time. Well, so there's two things that happen. One is that the on the newer cars, especially, and the Leaf does this as well. Even if you use the 120 in the old days, when you you had to put the charging station in to control the time that the charging is active, right? So if you wanted to charge at the nighttime between 11 and 5 a.m. when the power is the absolute cheapest for PG&E on the EV plans, you had to you had to do that um, using a charge station. And now the newer electric cars don't, the, the, all that stuff's on board. So when you park the BMW, it says, okay, when are you taking off tomorrow morning, nine o'clock, um, when, when does your cheap charging start? So you, you program that in and it just knows it's 11 o'clock where we live. Um, and it'll not charge until 11 o'clock and then do as much as it can beforehand. But if you say I need a de departure time by this and you want it to be full, then it'll start earlier in the more yeah. expensive charging time. Mm -hmm. Can you charge in your garage here at work, by the way? Uh, I do not have. You there's can, no charging stations in the garage at work. There's. I mean, even a, a 120 jack. There might be 120 jacks. I haven't looked. You would love that. It would be nice. It would be yeah. free. Yeah. Free <laughs> goes a long way. Well, um, someone's paying for it. But so there's, maybe not that much. There's Zynga charging stations. Like there's charging stations at Zynga. Um, that show up on so okay next thing the nav is really important in the electric car this is the other thing i learned hmm. normally i wouldn't pay for for the expensive center console nav option and all that stuff really i have a phone my phone knows where i'm supposed to be yeah the car doesn't well this car did but normally the car doesn't um if you have the right app on your phone, this can tap into your iOS calendar and can pull the location and stuff so that the nav will know, okay, your appointment's here. Here's how long you needed to go, blah, 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 blah. Oh. Um, with the all electrics, the nav is really important. And Tesla actually just rolled out a feature update to this as well for the Model S uh, that basically says, 
we're we're going to start warning the shit out of you if you look like you're driving someplace it's going to take you outside of your capacity to get back to a charger so you can theoretically never unknowingly run out of range of charging um the bmw's nav system both pops up with uh, charging stations like you can go to the nav and search for charging stations and it has all the relevant data about them that it pulls from the internet so it, it's like this is a level two this is a level two with fast dc this is blah blah blah. presumably accurate and updated regularly i i if it's not then it's fairly useless but i i it since it connects to the internet to do that stuff i assume that so the car has regularly. its own or it's your your phone internet. it uses your phone's internet um and it it connects it uses google maps um, rather than uh, CarPlay. The data from Google Maps, even though the interface doesn't look exactly like the Maps. The maps are provided by Google and the data is provided by Google as well as my understanding. So I think that you want to have a an easy access to a database of public charging. I'm sure you can get that with an app on your phone, but just being able to use the, the in-dash thing to point to the right place was really useful. Um, the car feels much more like a sports car than most of these. It drives much more like a sports car yeah, than most of did these you electrics. Floor it? Yeah, it, it'll really push you back in the seat. That's cool. In instant torque. Yeah, it, constant torque all the way through. Yeah. I mean, until you we we were we hit eighty five miles an hour going down the freeway, um, and when we did when we hit seventy in the smart car, I thought we were going to die mm -hmm. and immediately backed <laughs> off. Um, with this, it rode like a like a uh, much more. Uh, capable car. Did you ever um, run down the battery and have to use the? Uh, I couldn't. Generator? I couldn't do it. I couldn't. ran out of time because I have. I've watched every video review I can find. Not one of them shows the sound of that engine. It's the the thing that I, I so I talked to the dealer about it, and they said if I wanted to see that, then they would set that up. Okay. Um, They're not recommended though. Like it's, it's not like it's one of those things where you want to every daily no run into the gas. It's yeah. not like the Volt. So right, it, where where you can just drive across country in this car. Right. Yeah. The, uh, the the gas. And you said it's like a motorcycle engine. Yeah. Uh, it's it's emergency only. Think yeah. of it as a reserve tank. Yeah. Or, it, or it, it's for those times, like if you drive to Petaluma and in order to get back you need to hit the gas tank because somebody was on the public charger. It it's a it's the get out of jail and get my, out of towing free. My understanding is they went they did that they they could have put a bigger engine in it yeah. and made it more like the Volt, which is you know basically unlimited range as soon as you use the battery up, but they didn't do that for tax reasons because if they put a they, if they put a motor in that only extends the range as much as the battery capacity, which are they're supposed to be about eighty miles on paper. Uh, in reality, it was probably 70, 65, 65 yeah. to 70, depending on how aggressively you drive. Then there's a better tax incentive for, the, mm -hmm. for you, the buyer, when you buy the car. Right. So that, that's exactly it. There's, there's, you get a federal discount and a state discount, depending on the state you're in, or a tax rebate. Uh, if you buy pure electric, it's less if you buy electric high, you know, P, uh, what is it, partial electric hybrid, like Priuses and Volts. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's even less the further down that chain you go. Um, so this is, this, uh, this still counts as a zero emission vehicle. Um, in California, that means you get a green. That's it then. A green tag yeah. instead of a white tag. Um, for the, the carpool and you still get to use the the HOV lane right. with one person in the car. Does the Volt count as a zero emission? No, the Volt gets a green tag. Okay, um, so it's the same as this is this counts the same as the Volt for California. You get the right, you get the big tax rebate, but you don't get the white tag. Okay. You get the green tag. Um, it was it was interesting. It was a super fun car to drive. Um, it's the suspension is really really rough compared to say a Leaf or the Fiat 500e even, which which rides like a station wagon. This rides much more like a sports car. It's bumpy when you hit road. You know it doesn't absorb bumps. I don't mind that. Um, it the steering is really tight. 
Like so, you you are actively mm-hmm. you're actively controlling it inside the lane the entire time. Tends it, to drift more than say my escape. It has active cruise control. Is that right? It so, is. so it, yeah, the active cruise control was really interesting. I'd never driven a car with that before. Um, so it uses an optical sensor on the front, a camera on the mounted on the front, and. Basically, when you're driving on the freeway or in stop-and-go traffic, it detects cars ahead of you and maintains the distance that you set between whoa, whoa, you whoa, and them. Stop-and-go traffic? Stop-and-go traffic. Now, this is actually news because last I heard, that was only available in Europe. So with this, you you set the cruise control at whatever the speed limit is. Also, the car always knows the speed limit. That was really weird for me, but it pulls it from the map data. Oh, really? Just knows. Okay, you when you cross when you cross a speed limit sign, like half a second later, the little duber on the on the console okay. says twenty five miles an hour. Because the Tesla pulls it from optics, it can see road signs. Oh, maybe maybe this is pulling it. from optics too. Yeah. That would be crazy. Wow. Um, but it, actually, it's not because when you're on two eighty and you're on the elevated part of two eighty, it gets confused. Hmm. So it doesn't. I assume it's coming from GPS. Okay, but tell um, me, so the the adaptive actually works below thirty miles an hour? Yeah. Dude, so, so street like you coming up from Pacifica. I I drove up 19th without ever touching a pedal. Oh, that's weird. It was scary. It's a, like this Faith. is a little scary, right? Faith well, in the car. You're always you're always on the you're always ready to mash the brake. Um, but it'll it will roll up to a stop. It doesn't quite stop, but usually <laughs> usually usually it coasts and leaves enough rolling time uh-huh. that it that it takes off you take off beforehand so once it comes to an actual stop like if you're going up a slight incline or it's flat and it actually does charge itself to a stop then it'll sit for a few seconds and the cruise control light goes from green to red if it goes from green to red you have to hit resume or touch the gas for it to re-engage and take off again Mm. Um, so if you sit for too long, it's like three seconds or five seconds or something like that. No, oh. then it won't take back off. Weird. But as long as it keeps rolling, yeah, you don't ever have to hit the gas, and you can adjust it. Like it's cl- the the controls on the wheel are clearly designed to to take advantage of that. Like the, there's a rocker on the wheel that lets you set right. one mile increments on the cruise control. Mm. Um, so like they they very clearly want you to not. To, to use this in situations where keeping your foot on the gas constantly would be an annoyance. It doesn't stop at stop signs, right? It doesn't stop at stop signs. You have to do that. But it, it'll stop if a car is in front of you that is stopped if, in the middle, like in the middle of traffic. In the middle of traffic. That's amazing. It, if, if a car pulls in front of you, it'll slow down and make the gap. How much gap does it leave? It depends. You can, you can, there's a button hmm. to make it bigger or a button to make it smaller. The iconography on those buttons was a little sketchy. And I it's comfortable really for you as a, as a passenger. Like um, the, the, the start stop. Yeah, it, it's a gentle start-stop. Like, so the thing I found is that to get the optimal mileage out of it, using that cruise control as much as possible, um, it, A, helped me learn, because it, it hits the acceleration profiles that are the optimal acceleration yeah, yeah, profiles, yeah. and same thing on the deceleration side. Um, when I was using that most aggressively, I got the best mileage out of if it. If you were to own this car and you did this, you'd experience this for a month, would you become comfortable enough to simply glance up to steer now and then and use your phone while you were oh, driving? fuck no. Are you sure? Absolutely positive. All right, good. I don't use the phone. I, I'm really aggressively anti-using phone in the car. Yeah, but you've never had a car that can practically drive itself. I, practically. I, so here's the thing. It's the, the places where that failed, um, like driving up my street in Pacifica, which is a two-way street, p- traffic's coming. When you come around a curve, occasionally it'll pick up a car coming in the other direction, as in your lane, and slam on the brakes for no apparent reason. No way. You constantly have to be on guard oh, with wow. it. It's not, it is not, this is not a substitute for paying attention while you're driving. Good. Um, the other thing it does is a self park. Yes. So we tried this, I tried this probably a, a half dozen times 
of the half dozen times it failed three times. Failed how? Uh, one time it ground the rims up into the curb real good. Uh, one time, sorry BMW of San Francisco. Yeah, sorry BMW of San Francisco. They it was kind of scary. Didn't notice it made a really awful sound. Awful, like, like oh, like, and it was a generous, you know, generous spot. You know the sound that your three D printer makes when it hits the end of a rail and keeps yeah. trying to drive. It was yeah. like that, but with a car. <laughs> it was super. Like it's it is. So where the cruise control was something I'd actually use, I would never, ever use the auto pay park stuff. Interesting. On my own car. I'd use it on somebody else's car all the time. <laughs> um, but it, it, it's as fascinating as it is to watch the wheel turn by itself. And like the like if you can't parallel park a car that's 18 feet long or however long that thing is, you shouldn't be allowed to drive. Parallel parking is the, the only thing about driving that if you always follow the instructions, it works out. And it has time. a backup camera, right? It has a backup, oh, so yeah, backup that's, camera. Has not only has a backup it. camera, but it also has a dynamic camera, uh, a dynamic sensor. Yeah. Where it will give you like a, a, mm. a wave map of like distance. That's cool. It shows um, poles even, which I've never, I haven't had in a car. It doesn't before. have the, the cool top down camera. Yeah, where it looks like a bird's eye oh view of your God, car. That's How does that work? Thing. We talk about this. The Infinity has it. I think BMW even has it, where it uses really wide-angle cameras. Oh, that's right. On the the side mirrors in the back, and then distorts it so it looks like uh, the top-down look. And he, that that's magic. Um, self-driving cars. Elon Musk did talk about this recently, and it's it's something that I was thinking about. Google obviously testing self-driving cars. One of the biggest hurdles because there's so many unknown variables, and I think there's a story talking about like you know, not only self-driving cars will work when the cars and the the, the cloud has information not only about rules but also the very the the actual area you're driving in, height of curbs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But the margin for error on self-driving cars is almost zero, and that's not how. Especially Evolution. as other people are driving, as, as, as you're driving with real people. Even if you're driving by, by yourself and there's and there's you know other variables on the road, your expectation of a self-driving car, you give it zero margin for error because any ding, anything is unacceptable. Yeah, which is a purely human desire. But if I just spent a hundred thousand dollars on a car and I let that, it self-drive and it because, crashes into something, because, I'm gonna be fucking pissed. Right, right, and, or even a slight ding or a scratch. Yeah. But in terms of evolutionary uh, algorithms and programming, that's not how those things work. Right, things get smarter through trial and error, through making mistakes, and there is usually a margin for error that you can accept in order to improve. You can't expect to be perfect on the first try. But, but I think that's where the adaptive cruise control and stuff, like that that's the that's the trial and error part, right? But that's not that's that's stepping up in terms of a capability. But what do you there think? Is, are you saying we'll never have self driving cars? No, I'm saying that one Norm of the one hurdles, one of the big hurdles of self driving cars is that humans yes. expect perfection. Yes. And are very little tolerance for even smallest problems but I think that in order for like in order for us to teach AI to get to that perfection, you need to accept some problems. I mean, that's initially. why Google is approaching a million miles driven and and all that stuff, mm-hmm. right? And I'm sure those cars have, have had plenty of small things, but their their threshold for acceptability is gonna is has to meet the human threshold, <laughs> which is perfection, which is no <laughs> no dings, no. Yeah. Do you think that Google has like little cards they put under your windshield wiper if they tag your car on the street and it's like, hey, sorry, we we tagged your self-driving car. Here's a card. Go to this uh, URL. Put this code in. It's good for $10,000 <laughs> to fix your busted car. Yeah. Um, anyway, the i3 uh, was super interesting. We did a video. Uh, Norm, you wrote in it. You thought it was a little bit of a bump, bouncy ride. You weren't I, super I think, comfortable, oh, I, right? I don't like riding in BMWs. Just because of the tight suspension? I think, yeah. I think, I think as a passenger, it sucks. 
Mm. I think it's too, mm-hmm. it's not as comfortable as I prefer. It's not, it's not like driving a living room, like a, like a luxury sedan. Yes. Um, Jeremy, are you going to do the extended test drive? Uh, once I can charge at home. Okay. I, I read a review of it where the guy couldn't charge at home. And yeah. I was like, what are you even thinking doing a review and you can't charge the well, car? Well, I plugged 110. I plugged into he the wall. He couldn't even do that. Well, like he, he had to park on the street. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, that's the, that's the position I'm in. I can't okay. even do 110. So uh, once I can, absolutely. Um, and if you want to find out, you can, if your dealer, local dealer supports that, you can go to uh, BMW.com and it, like there was an extended test drive button on the page for the San Francisco dealership. Um. We also, normally, you and I spent a good 30 minutes yesterday looking at the Force Touch trackpad. Um, we're going to have a video for that tomorrow. On your mm-hmm. new MacBook Pro. On the new 13-inch MacBook Pro. Well, has the, the, the MacBooks, the new MacBook, the MacBook Pros and MacBook Air 13 and 11 were updated to Broadwell. Uh-huh. So new processor um, and also bigger t- trackpad. <coughs> Is this bigger? Is this uh, no, I guess the areas? MacBook is bigger. The MacBook is bigger. It looks Yours the same, same size. size but you have yeah. So only only the MacBook has the bigger trackpad. Yeah, I don't think they changed the sh- the chassis of the of the Air or the Red. So the trackpad has, like we alluded to earlier, uh, pressure sensitivity two two levels of t- uh, clicking, and it doesn't click physically. Click. It so doesn't physically depress. Depress. So this is the amazing thing. But it feels just like a click. I don't believe it. I if I could not. We spent five minutes trying to look like putting our eyes up close to the trackpad because we felt like it was clicking like is it actually clicking depressing down if you take any you know, my macbook your macbook when you you know press it down you can see the trackpad depressing. Yep. it moves yep. it moves down yeah this we thought it moved down we were convinced like it your, moved down your finger thinks that it moves <laughs> but it doesn't there's absolutely no movement the thing that's amazing about this to me is it means that apple must have spent a phenomenal amount of money to replicate the feeling of movement in a device that doesn't move. I'll be the judge of whether you, I think my finger moves. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. you get, take your headphones off. Walk over here. Oh press boy. the click. Here we go. This is some great audio. Jeremy's walking around the table. He's going to touch my laptop. Just give it a, give it a click. <laughs> that's great. No, that's good. It's not moving. It does not we, move. But you think it moves. Ah, uh, that's nuts. And then you can push it down one more time. Push it down and then push it down again. Oh, wow. It's not moving? It, <laughs> it does not move. This is the reaction everybody has when, when we do this. Because the fear is, oh, they got rid of the clickiness. It's just going to be it's, like, it's, a vibration or something. But the, I think it's... I concede. It, that's amazing. It must be like the linear actuators in a... In a in the watch. In the watch. I, I know or something, I fixed a similar it, technology, yeah. I fixed it at a teardown, and the watch actually does not have the pushback. It's oh, okay. just the two levels of sensitivity. What's the pushback? Uh, so, so the haptic. So the way it simulates the click is that it's instead of you hitting a resistance by moving, the pressing mm-hmm. of the click, uh, the, the, the pad, it's pushing a motor up against oh, you. I see. There's uh, electromagnets that, that trigger, basically, and, and make it bounce a little bit. That's neat. Um, I, I can't imagine how much money they spent to mimic the feeling of the physical Maybe trackpad. Maybe it was an easier problem than, I mean, who knows? The point is that it's convincing. It's actually better because you can press anywhere. Yeah, it, like that's the thing that's neat is the, you get the click of the top corners as well as the bottom corners. Yeah. Um, I'm, I was like, it was the kind of thing that when I took it out of the box, I set it up and I was like, oh, this feels pretty good. I'll look at it later. And then kind of just forgot that it wasn't the one that moves. We thought they got the wrong one. Yeah, Norm. Norm <laughs> did literally. Check. He was check. like, "Is are you sure you did buy the 2014 yeah. one, dumbass?" And then look, look, it's early 2015. So um, there you go. It's it's pretty amazing. Don't fear. Um, no fear of the Force Touch trackpad. Yeah, I'm 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 sold. 
as a result. Uh, do we want to talk about uh, Gear VR some more, or you feel like we're good on that? You guys did a 50-minute video on that. Yeah, I, yeah. I think... Uh, you should go oh, watch the 50-minute video. Yes, uh, we'll say that Gear VR, one of the things that uh, I want to correct, it does run 60 hertz, and this is the thing that has a synchronous time warp, which is the reason it is smoother than DK1. Yes, doesn't, oh. have, doesn't have low persistence. Doesn't have low persistence. Uh, which is 75. Which one is asynchronous time warp? Asynchronous time warp is where uh, they use the GPU to uh, warp. So you get information from the, the movement. That information gets sent to the renderer and the, the computation. The renderer pushes out an image. But by the end of that cycle, your head may have moved slightly gotcha. more. And so they take that information again and do a very simple distortion. Like a perspective warp? A, a rotational okay. uh, warp uh, of of the uh, the image to to compensate for that to yeah. make it to give you a more updated frame to reduce shutter. It doesn't have the high the low persistence of the, the flickering, uh, but it is smooth because of that and because it's only rotational movement. That's why asynchronous time warp works. The async time warp was Carmack's first con- contribution to yeah. Oculus. Um, do we want to talk about Teensy or we want to hold that until we're ready to shock talk about the project that you did that work for? No, we can talk about it because I'm working on it for other things. Okay. It's uh, basically, it's an Arduino-like microcontroller. People who are into Arduino already know about Teensy. So Teensy 3.1 is an ARM <clears throat> M4, uh, ARM Cortex M4 based microcontroller that costs 20, to 20 bucks, which is about the same as an Arduino Uno. Right. But it's infinitely more powerful. It's... Uh, got more registers more memory a ton of ram it's got like i want to say like 64k of ram 256k of flash Uh, you're never going to need more than 512k of ram you know runs runs uh 96 megahertz uh you know the arduino runs at 16 it's very very powerful Mm -hmm. um it's most of the arduino libraries are compatible with it i've been using the tnc3 one it has a lot of headers too right exclusively has a lot more headers um it's it's a great platform it's also teensy now the that's already a good deal, but the guy who makes that is um, a quite quite smart, and he made a ARM M0 based version of it, which he's calling the Teensy LC for low cost. It only costs like twelve dollars. Wow! And it, it's it runs at forty eight megahertz. It's not as fast as the three point one, but it's nuts cheap. I yeah. mean, so th- I mean. I'm going to use this for the controller board if I do a revision of the game frame because there's no reason not to. I couldn't make something this cheap. Can you do wireless and stuff with that as well? Is it powerful enough to do that? You'd have to hook it up to something that does wireless. Okay. But, but uh, you know, Wi-Fi chips aren't that expensive. Um, but the... Uh, you can also, there's also the, what's the other, what's, the, there is one that has Wi-Fi embedded on it. Spark. Yeah, thank you. The Spark Core yeah. was, I, I want to say like 30 bucks They're, or 40 it bucks. It was 50 bucks when I bought it, but I think it's gotten cheaper. So yeah, they just released a revision of their tech that's actually more powerful than half the price. So that's okay. now, I think, 20 bucks for a Spark. It's coming out later this year. The only this thing year. that was frustrating to me about the Spark was you had, the easiest way to get code on it was through the web interface, which yeah. meant that it was, there was always, a, like it wasn't as instant as mashing the upload button in Arduino and it just going up. You still had to. They have a web-based IDE that they like you to use. Yeah. It, yeah. It took a long time, but I think they've actually improved the localized development plat- um, tools. Okay. So they've, they've fixed that problem. In any case, the TCLC is the cheapest and b- most bang for your buck of an Arduino microcontroller, uh, you know, compatible micro controller and it just came out last week and it's phenomenal i mean it's it's great so i'm I'm super happy with it does that extra perf let you do stuff like sound easier than it is on arduino um with the 3.1 it you would want the 3.1 if you're going to do serious sound stuff because the same developer actually made a sound board that uh, mounts onto it and does 44 kilohertz stereo quality 16-bit sound cool i mean uh, cd quality so 
it's yeah, and plus you can't actually do sound output from the actual pins of the TNC three really? without the soundboard. So then you have to run it through an amp or something, right? Um, yeah, you would need to run it through an amp, but it's it's got the DAC embedded on on board. That's crazy, and it's uh, it's pretty good. It's not it's like sixteen bit or twelve bit software. Or it's twelve bit sound. It's not sixteen bit sound, but um, it's it's quite powerful. Sounds like a bad Skype call. Probably better. Okay. Um, uh, the last thing I want to talk about is Inbox for Gmail now supports Google Apps for your domain, which meant that I've been able to actually use it because um, most of you know my Gmail account is for personal stuff and I never really use it for anything, any substantial amounts of email. I really, after a day, I'm, I'm a fan of what Inbox does for uh, mail management. Good. I can't. I deleted it after a month. Couldn't can do it. The thing I like is it lets you group and get rid of it, uh, massive quantities of email in one swipe. Yeah. So like it sorts stuff into the promotions and social and forums and all that stuff. Then you can either remove the things that are actually good, you know, s- sweep them away and spam everything else, which is letting me mass delete spam in 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 enormous quantities. Yeah. It also snoozes messages, which keeps your inbox clean. If which you're, I like. If you're trying to keep zero inbox. Yeah. The illusion um, of zero inbox. Yeah, I guess it is an illusion, but it works for me. Yeah, I'm I'm pleased with it so far. I'll, I'll report in after I've used it more. Like I said, I'm only a day in at this point, but um, uh, I was really, really optim, really pleasantly surprised by yeah. how how usable it have is. Have you tried the calendar app? Um, I have tried the calendar app. Same UI. I like Fantastical better still. Yeah, it's quite different than Fantastical. Yeah, I think Fantastical is like I I love the way Fantastical works. I actually use it on the Mac and on the phone and tablet. It's 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 really good. Yeah. Um, Norm, anything else for you? Uh, we did a bunch of stuff, but we can talk about it. And yeah, we'll talk about the unicycle more next week. Um, and light bulbs next week as well. Probably, uh, we have a couple of good questions, so I'm going to play some music. We'll take some questions and then call it a show. Emails. Well, but we do the other one. Emails. It's, you know, we don't do emails. We do emails. No, 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 no. Questions. Boom. If you have a question for this is only a test, the email address is podcast at tested.com. Please keep your questions brief, uh, and, uh, on the point. The first question comes from Paul. He says, hey, guys, I'm a huge fan of Tested, and I'm particularly interested in your videos on virtual reality. I think perhaps it's the most exciting emerging technology at the moment and has the potential to revolutionize more than just gaming. Um, I read an article that Will wrote about how VR, when done effectively, tricks the primitive parts of our brain into believing that virtual space is real, thus creating the experience desired. Uh, my question is, has anyone considered the possible ramifications of tricking our brains in such a way? Could this be potentially, could this potentially have any adverse psychological effects? Um, and is it something that should be looked into in more depth? Do you think people will be addicted to VR? Yes. You know, we can't be afraid of every new technology. I think we should be afraid of everything, Jeremy Williams. People will be addicted and can get addicted to all sorts of things. And I don't, I think VR is no different. Maybe it's more susceptible. And there is a, I think you can definitely... While you are in it, you can be immersed to a point where, you, uh, like, you forget to eat. You for forget about the. Uh, you lose uh, sense of the some of the outside world. But the moment you take it off, maybe your own personal physical health. But the moment you take it off, I think it's the world comes back to you instantaneously, and you start crying. I don't think you start crying. You're you're, you're in a room filled with feces and wireless controllers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your adult diapers have overrun. It's just, Tuesday and you thought it was Sunday afternoon. Just as there are people willing to go to Mars, lining up ready to go to Mars on a one-way trip 
in order to ex- do that for science, I am ready to commit myself to VR testing. One one way trip to VR to see if, <laughs> to, to test the <laughs> limits. Say goodbye to your children of addiction. It's <laughs> good. It's good. We'll wow. get the couch and the soylent ready for you, Jeremy. Yeah. Bring it. First one in. Ten percent of those demos will be really nauseating. Um, I mean, so somebody else had asked a question on one of the message boards about whether we felt like, because um, last week when Gary was here, we talked a lot about being not present and smartphones. And then we talked about VR, um, at length. Uh, and we're like, you know, jack us in, we'll tune out of the real world forever. Um, I mean, do you, I, 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 I don't know how I feel about that yet. I feel like VR is a more kind of situational thing, whereas the phones are omnipresent. Um, and that kind of changes it. I don't expect to be walking around the real world with VR goggles on at any point in the future. That's more AR. Yeah, but even even then, I don't I like I don't see that impacting. Like when I was wearing Google Glass all the time, I wasn't always looking up into the right when I was talking to people. That's because it was only in part of your, that's Google true. Glass it, did, was it, wasn't, it didn't obscure my vision. That's yeah. true. I mean, yeah, yeah. the the, uh, the good like if they think uh, uh, Ready Player One is the great VR book. In my opinion, the, the great AR book is Freedom TM, which is that the follow up to Daniel Suarez. Thing. Have you read that? Yeah, I read. I did. So you know, but what they were they were wearing basically like Oakleys, and yeah. it was completely augmented reality, and they could scan the world in front of them. Everybody wore them. And if you imagine, you know, whatever Magic Leap ends up being or Hololens getting to a form factor where it is just glasses, uh, then it you know it is omnipresent like smartphones. Yeah. Um, Werner Ben Werner Vinge wrote a book. Um, I think it was Werner Vinge about uh, AR set in San Diego. Um, I'll I'll keep looking for it and see if I can find the name. But did you see the uh, the Black Mirror special? No, I haven't. Crystal seen Crystal special. Is it about AR? I mean, there's a lot of Black Mirror that has to do with AR stuff. Like, I still haven't watched AR. It. You gotta watch it. I know. You say that little little prescient things. Hmm. Um. By the way, Ernie Klein's book, uh, the follow-up to Ready Player One, was announced. Oh, really? Yeah, it's um, it's not a sequel, and it's uh, I think it's called Armada, and it's coming out in I want to say June or July. So the um, the Werner Vinge book that I was talking about is called Rainbows, and it's about uh, AR in a world where your glasses not just uh, don't just overlay a different uh, you know, overlay things on top of the reality that's already there, but they actually are capable to the point that they can replace reality. So you see, if if you're participating in the in the uh, fantasy AR, then you'll see. A, the library at the university will look like a castle instead of like a library at the university. Even the science fiction one will look like a dystopian Blade Runner thing, but it overlays theme specific stuff on actual real world structures. That's cool. It was a really good book. You, but, if, if you want to read an AR book that's dope, you should read that. It's really good. That sounds great. Uh, it's called Verner, uh, Rainbow's End. Rainbow's End by Werner Vinge. Everyone can see their own perception, their own interpretation. Exactly suited to them. Yeah. It, it, that that was the whole that was the whole crux of the book. It was it was fascinating. Or share one, I imagine. Oh, oh um, yeah. yes. Yeah, you subscribe to other people's views, literally. That's cool. I always wanted to be able to subscribe to other people's eye um, headphones. Like if you walk by someone, yeah. you see somebody on the bus, I want to hear what they're listening to. Wasn't that a Zoom feature? Yes, yeah, squirting. Yeah, you could squirt. Oh, squirting. That's, that's, yeah. that's, that's what squirting was. Oh, oh man. It's, it's what, uh, it's last FM, or not as last FM, it's a turntable.fm for the, for the real space, for meat space. Yeah. Meat space turntable. What happened to turntable FM? Did uh, it go lic- away? Like what away, licensing, oh. fad. Um, Jacob. Yes, you're, you're right. That's the, that was a, it's appealing. It's the same thing with driving cars. Like if you, you pull up someone at a stoplight, I couldn't you hear exactly what they're hearing. Yep. And not over. Well, you, know, you can tune into that. There's yeah. a thing called radio. 
Well, that's, that's, I mean, radio is because limited channels, right. you have that shared experience, but in on-demand streaming, infinite song selection, you know, what's, what's the way to do that? Yep. NFC, RFID, local Wi-Fi. I'm sure Samsung will have something. <laughs> Ernie Klein's book comes out July 14th. Armada. July 14th of this year? Yes. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Brian writes in and says, Hey guys, what are your thoughts on keeping boxes for tech items and small collectibles like cool desk figures or whatever? Nothing actually worth money. In my mind, I always think I need to keep them in case I want to resell them, but I almost never resell them. Usually just give old tech to friends and family members. I've got a router box sitting here on my desk and I can't decide if it's going in the closet or to the recycling. At the same vein, what do you guys do with your manuals for your devices? I have a binder with separate sections for tool manuals and tech manuals, but more often than not, they're never used and instead just exist to be kindling in the event my house catches fire. Mm. Do you guys keep boxes and manuals? I used to keep boxes, not not never for tech. Tech boxes are the first thing that go mash them flat and chuck them in the recycling. Get, yes, and I and I value tech companies who package not with styrofoam but with clever cardboard cutouts. Yeah, um, especially for like monitors and other other big things. But but I used to save some boxes, and now I save no boxes. Boxes are yep. the worst. The yeah. only thing I save are boxes for things that are hard to move. So like my kit, my KitchenAid stand mixer, I keep the box for mm. because packing that like with styrofoam or, or bubble wrap or something is going to be really, really a pain I in the ass. I threw away my KitchenAid stand mixer I box. kept my boosted board box, but most boxes I get rid of. Yeah. And manuals because they're all better. They're updated in PDF format anyway. Yeah, that, yeah. And manuals actually keep. Because manuals, I find that, especially for motherboard manuals, mm-hmm. uh, I the, all you never know which rev you have, right? You never know which rev. It's yeah. always difficult. If you're doing something like a computer where you don't have, I mean, going through a PDF on an iPad or a phone for a manual to find jumper configurations hmm. is a pain. I, I used to keep all of that stuff and I don't, I throw it like, so I keep the, I keep all the bits and pieces that come with my computer that I don't use. Like That's the extra, never use. Hold, well, like the extra slot covers and the extra SATA cables and all that stuff, the extra screws that come with the case that you don't use, those all go in the motherboard box. And then there's a place in my garage where motherboard boxes live. And I used to do that. That's now, it. motherboard boxes, it's a box. That straight goes away, trash. straight in the trash. Everything else is Ziploc bags, Sharpie labels. I have a box. The other thing is we often get stuff that we have to send back. So I have a box graveyard in my garage. We have a box that graveyard is, here. Well, you don't even want to talk about this one. Um, but yeah, the box graveyard in my garage is for stuff that has to go back at some point and I just don't have any place to store it. So there's a big giant pile of boxes in my garage. It's a constant source of strife with the missus. The idea for collectibles and people who are buying, you know, figurines, toys, whatever, and think that keeping the box will increase the resale option. As soon as you open it, it doesn't matter, right? And if someone wants it bad enough, they'll take it without the box. Uh, the reason to keep any of that box, someone's art's nice in the box and you keep it and and cut them out and save that. Uh, but the, any of that packing material. I just uh, sold two iPad minis and a GTX 680 on eBay. Uh-huh. And I called up Ship to have them pick it up and send it off. They boxed it up themselves. It's a wonderful new thing. Yeah. And I don't future. think, you know, honestly, I don't, th- I, I, I know like, you know, for people who gift used items and some a great thing to do, yep. they prefer, like having the original box. And, and I used to like, you know, every time I buy a new iPad or a tablet, keep, I never open the, uh, the earbuds because I want to keep them. And that increases the resale value when yeah, you have the Nobody wants earbuds. used earbuds. No one wants used earbuds. If you have all like the cables perfectly coiled to get the, the more new like experience, but it's, it's not worth it. 
And uh, on that note, I think we're probably done with the show today. If you have a question, it's podcast at tested.com. Uh, please send questions. We love to hear them. Preferably stuff that's not, hey, what should I buy? We like more, more kind of thoughtful questions. Um, Jeremy Williams, thanks for coming by, as always. Uh, uh, as always, my pleasure. At Jerware. Yeah, I'm 20 subscribers away from 1,000. Nice. Yeah. Post something interesting today. I'll retweet it. We'll get you over that hump. That's very generous. Every tweet I make is interesting. I I know. (laughs) Post something that's interesting to me. Post something about me personally that I find personally interesting. I'll do my best. Okay. Uh, Norman Chan, what's going on with you? Anything exciting? GearVRface.tumblr.com. I I saw that I was once again the headliner for another VR face Tumblr. So... Um, well, I those, created this one, so I get to choose. Those pictures are terrifying. Um, don't look into the light. Someone did, act, did correctly point out. It's bad for you. It's because of the way the lenses work and they, they magnify. Mm-hmm. Oh, so when you told me to look at the light so you could get a better shot of my eyes? Well, your eyes are fine. Well, so. now, when he was wearing it in the video, you did the same thing. You told him to look up so the camera could see him. So the well, light, yeah, so the light but I didn't eyes. know that. Well, I didn't know that either. Now we, now we know. Uh, don't put on the Gear VR without, the glass, without a phone in there and then look at the sun. That would probably be Jesus bad. Christ. No <laughs> that kidding. That would probably be bad. <laughs> the little points of light are just etching across your eyeballs. That's body horror, man. Wow, it's like photoreactive curing. Um, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for watching. And uh, we'll I guess we'll be back next Thursday with another episode of, of This is Only a Test. Hey, today's outro is brought to you by Ad Hoc. Here it is. Hi there. I didn't see you. Test it. I'm buying boxes of Purell for my hall suites. Buck a minute. Bye bye. <laughs>